The Rwando Podcast is an exploration of the unconscious and the game of life. Be sure to visit Rwando.com to get a preview chapter of my upcoming book, Infinite Play, and free access to my content library. Enjoy the show. Today we are speaking about the dark masculine and sexual shame. And the reason why I haven't been done a solo podcast in a while, the real reason is like my personal life kind of got in the way. Um, went through a breakup two months ago-ish. Then my, there was my birthday. I did a little too much MDMA, if I may admit that. That kind of knocked me out for a while. And then I ended up in this uh, very fulfilling and fun um, while well, I'm in this uh, very nice connection with a woman and it's kind of taken me away from that. But what has brought me back to the podcast is you guys. Um, I don't know what caused this, but a couple, I guess in the last week, for some reason, a lot of discussions spiked up in the Mask and Underground Facebook group. Um, and, uh, and, you know, there's been a lot of great threads and these threads, a lot of them touched on sexual shame and they kind of inspired me to make this uh, episode. So thank you guys so much for doing this. Um, if you are watching this live, I know it's maybe a weird time for some people. Uh, feel free to ask your questions in real time. I have an outline. I'm going to try to cover the important stuff, but I'm happy to go off on tangents or ask your questions. Someone asked right off the back, uh, right off the bat, am I completely sexually shame free? Absolutely not. And I'm going to go into my personal stuff a little bit, but I have worked through a lot of sexual shame and I can see that in the results of my life. And I hope to share as much as I can that's useful. Um, let's see here. Uh, no, no big announcements. Um, I just want to say again, thank you to everyone in the Masculine Underground group. If you're not in the Masculine Underground group, if you're listening to the recording of this, uh, join. It, we've actually had a lot of great discussion lately, and it's been inspiring. And um, yeah, it's gotten got me back on here. Uh, good morning back to you, uh, those in Tokyo. Hey, what's up, everybody? Oh, great to have some people on. I didn't think uh, maybe I thought this was a weird time for some people. Um, but anyway, yeah, if you're listening to the recording, join the Masculine Underground group. There's great uh, discussions going on right now. And I have one request before I jump in uh, to the content, <clears throat> whether you're uh, watching this live or listening to the recording. Um, someone actually in the group asked me what I'm working on personally. And the thing that I'm working on, the thing I'm focusing on the most is kind of an internal thing, but also it's also related to my work is like how I actually want to bring my voice into the world and help people. And something I've been coming to terms with over the last year is that I really hate screen-based click-baity media, including social media, especially Instagram, which I'm on and I've used work-wise and I've gotten a lot of fun from it. It's been good for my dating life, but I want to move away from that as well. And uh, it's just kind of a thing. It's not exactly form formed yet, but I really want to get away from encouraging people to be on their phones like I, I don't even if I have good things to say and I hope I do have good things to say I really don't like the idea of encouraging people to be on their phones which is why I really love the podcast because I hope it's you know a little deeper more thought-provoking higher attention span stuff this is all to say that um, I would love to get this podcast out to more people so I don't have to think about I could just actually get off Instagram and get off YouTube potentially um, because I don't I don't really like these visual media uh, that um, get people stuck to their phones. So my humble request is that if you enjoy this show at all, if you're, whether recording or live, if you can rate it on the pod, whatever podcast app you use, whether iTunes or Spotify, that mean a lot to me. And also I know that my, conver my topics are not exactly shareable. I don't expect to share with your friends and family a thing on sexual shame, 
But if you know a, a, per, a specific person who could really benefit from this, because like, aside, forget about marketing or whatever, like just the idea that I know that there are men out there, many young men who are struggling with topics like this, and they're just not getting good information. Not even to say that my information is the best, but like I would really, it, it kind of makes me sad to just know that this is available and it's not helping people. So if you could, if you know someone that would really benefit from this, if you could share it, I think that'd be great. I, I would appreciate that. Perhaps that other person would appreciate it too. All right. So jumping into today's topic, darkness and sexual shame, which are intimately tied. In fact, I'd say one defines the other. Um, we're going to speak about like three three sections. I uh, have a basic three section outline. The first part is going to be uh, on how to perceive this. It's going to be a little bit of definitions of words, which is. Um, a lot more practical than most people think. I mean, especially when it comes to abstract terms, a lot of people have um, twisted connotations. I don't even say that there's like one real connotation, but when it comes to shame, especially shame with men, I think a lot of guys, especially younger guys, I'd say especially, especially Generation Z, are growing up with these um, not conducive connotations around masculinity, around their sexuality, which is giving them extra levels of shame beyond the regular amounts of shame that we kind of have to have, which I'm going to explain in this first section. So that's why it's really important to understand how to view these topics first. The second bit, I mean, um, these topics meaning darkness and shame as a whole. The second bit I'm going to talk about is um, specifically shame and sexuality and expression when it comes to men, because uh, there's two specific types of shame or taboo that men experience. Um, and the third bit is the more practical application, what to do with all this information, um, like how to actually free yourself from shame and some tips to unleash your dark masculine in a healthy, not destructive way. So again, if you're watching this live, feel free to interrupt me. I will try to answer everything as they come. First, a sip of water. All right. So first, what is darkness? Darkness is anything that we disapprove of. This sounds very subjective. It is totally subjective. And that's actually the first thing to understand is that um, we're going to talk about two different types of shaming. The individual shaming, the stuff that you as an individual person subjectively deem as not worthy of approval, whether it's in yourself or in other people or in reality. And then there's the collective uh, shame of like, oh, this is bad and this is good. And it's really important to understand this because... Um, there is no universal set of taboos. Um, this, we're going to touch a little bit on like the cult psychology stuff that I was talking about, but because I think a lot of the shaming experienced by individuals is actually just, I mean, it's bad brainwashing. You could argue everything is brainwashing, which I do sometimes, but let's just stick with the shame piece. It's bad brainwashing. And, and an example, a couple of years ago during the height of Me Too, I was coaching a, a young guy. Uh, he was in college, really nice dude, you know, attractive by most people's definition and he was having this like deep kind of dark struggle where um he'd connect with a woman uh the woman would want to have sex with him he would want to have sex with a woman but he had such ingrained beliefs that him as a man expressing his sexuality even as simply as letting her know that she he wants to sleep with her was in some way harmful uh, probably came from his connection, certainly came from his conditioning to like think of his own expression that way. If you just imagine like something that's supernatural to you, you see, you believe it is evil. Like 
a cow eating grass, if a cow thinks, oh, like my urge to eat grass is evil, obviously that's going to cause this internal turmoil, which is not beneficial to him or other people. The thing, the important thing is that this collective belief is kind of arbitrary. So if you happen to catch the episode I did on Prometheus Rising, which is a book by Robert Anton Wilson on the on Timothy Leary's um, Stages of Consciousness, which is, uh, yeah, I mean, stages. you can check that episode out if you want. Um, the reason why shame exists and the reason why morality exists, according to their argument, is actually to control sexuality. So, I mean, this might seem like a jump for some people. Um, I'm not saying that I believe this 100%, but this is uh, Robert Anton Wilson's argument, and I think there's a lot of weight to it, that morality evolved in humanity to control sex specifically. Morality obviously covers many things that have nothing to do with sex, but it originally evolved to control sex. Why? Because even the most primitive cultures... Uh, in, in, human, in human history have recognized that there's something about sex that can be dangerous um, to the collective. Um, in that same episode, we spoke about how the third circuit of consciousness is our, our human circuit, in quotes. It's our, it's our semantic circuit where we, we, we learn how to uh, use language to label things and use metaphors. And the reason for that, uh, just as a quick refresher, and this is a note, Noah, you you've no, Yuval Noah Harari's argument uh, in Sapiens is that humans evolved to develop this ability to abstract ideas and create mythologies because this allows us to connect over, um, over a, a span that's far greater than our mammal brain's ability to socialize. So you may have heard of Dunbar's number. Mammals can only really have 150 relationships before they're maxed out, like intimate relationships. But humans can organize way beyond 150. We can have, uh, you know, towns of 10,000, uh, countries of 300 million. Why? Because we can attach ourselves to an idea. Instead of, it's like, no American has a relationship with every other American, but we're all, uh, we all have a relationship with the American flag and this idea of America. Why does this matter? Because this is how humans took over the world. But even the most primitive humans recognize that in order for this to work, you kind of have to defer your individual interests for the collective on some level, right? I mean, depending on, you know, if you look at different styles of government, they do this at different levels. Um, but the way that humans evolved to ensure that a group of people beyond 150 people can organize around something close enough that they can function as a team is morality and specifically connect, uh, controlling sex. Because if um, sex, it, the sexual impulse biologically has us put the individual our individual genes ahead of the collective right any animal any animal any sexual animal when sexually charged up during mating season or whatever will fight other members of a species will compete uh, will try to get their sperm into the the egg you know like it's all about uh, sexual reproduction is all about uh, your individual genes passing on we've evolved to also like have social um social ties because social animals uh, you know, get more individual benefit from having a collective. That's why we have collectives in the first place. But in the hands of a human, if every single human in a group is fully sexually charged and doing whatever they want to do sexually, it's very unlikely that they'll be able to be cohesive because they'll all be um, driving to pass on their own genes, which is why every society in human history, even the most primitive societies, the most like close to nature, close to animal living that, that we know of, still have some sort of taboo when it comes to sexuality. There is no universal taboo, and this is the first thing to understand when it comes to your shame, because a lot of guys uh, have 
like a shame, like, oh, I'm, I'm into this fetish or I want to do this with women or I want to do this with men or I have this impulse and people start to think like, oh, I must be bad because the collective says this is not normal. It's outside of vanilla and they feel shitty about themselves. But, you know, I mean, for an extreme example, I, I spoke about this in Prometheus Rising. <clears throat> in, in modern day, if, uh, if the president of the United States tries to marry his sister, that's taboo. He'd be shunned. He wouldn't be able to be president. But in ancient Egypt, if the pharaoh didn't marry his sister, he would also be shunned, which just goes to show, I mean, there's certain things that are close to universal, like don't go around killing people, don't have sex with your mother. Like those are kind of universal taboos. They're pretty close to universal, but very few things are actually universal. The only universal thing in human society is that there has to be some sort of taboo. There has to be something that um, some arbitrary, perhaps, set of rules, set of norms that have everybody okay, be like, okay, this is how we have sex, this is how we date, this is how we mate, this is how we behave in society to support reproduction. And very often it was driven by people in charge. We can argue the patriarchal forces or like the chieftain, you know, gathered all the beautiful women to be his concubines and left the less attractive women for other men. Like there's a lot of, there's, there's other things, other forces going on. But the collective purpose of taboos and shame is to get people on the same line. With your individual shame, again, you have to remember that no, there is no situation where a large group of people have individuals who perfectly match up to this, this uh, collective norm. There's a, even in the most like, think about the most Christian, brainwashed Christian society where everyone pretty much believes in whatever you know, the, the priest says is the right thing. They still have individual urges, specifically when it comes to sex around like, well, I know the, the priest says no sex before marriage, but man, I really want to have sex before marriage or whatever it is, right? It's very unlikely for any individual to match the collective taboos, which is why we all kind of have shame to some degree. If you grew up in a particularly, uh, in, a, in an environment with particularly harsh and rigid taboos, let's say you grew up Catholic, you probably have a lot of shame because it's very, it's near impossible for an individual to match up to um, the Catholic norm of sexual expression, which is why all Catholics have guilt. Um, maybe if you grew up in a more free household, in a hippie commune household or something, uh, there's less rigid taboos, so you can feel a little more free. But I have a, I have a good friend, her parents were super product, progressive, super like, do whatever you want, express yourself, be free. And they actually shame her for choosing to take on a housewife role in her relationship. To them, that's like, how could you do that? We raised you to be a feminist. How could you choose? But like, that's a taboo. There's always going to be a taboo in the collective. Um, someone asked, uh, so sex is inherently selfish, which undermines a collective goal. Yes. I mean, biologically, you know, our genes are trying to get us to beat out the other genes and, and make it to the next generation. Um, okay, so what does, shame, what does this shame, this, uh, this um, impossible goal of the collective norm do to us as individually? They force us to separate from some part of ourselves. So like, let's say you as an individual uh, are into 10 things sexually, uh, but the, the, the collective says, oh, only five of these things are okay, and there's these other five things that you should think you should be attracted to, but you're just not. Those, those five things that you now, uh, that don't match up the collective norm, your, your perception of what's good and what's normal, now become dark, right? The, the line between light and dark is kind of arbitrary. It's set by your perceptions and the perceptions given to you by your collective. But, uh, it, it's, I mean, there's, what, what happens is you now start to think, oh, I want to be part of this collective, 
So these five things or let's say three things or one thing that I'm not into, I'm going to like separate. Oh, that's not me. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I'm kind of into feet, but that's not me. Or I'm kind of into, I mean, there's different, we're going to talk about the different types of taboos, but I'm kind of into older women. I'm into women of a different ethnicity. I'm into something that's not okay with my collective. Like, oh, that's not me. That's not, I, I assure you guys, that's not me. And what happens is you dissociate from that part of yourself, which causes turmoil, right? There's no way that you can cut off a part of you that is true for you without causing some sort of turmoil. So how does this turmoil show up? Um, it could be uh, you numb out in order to not feel the fact that you like, let's say you're Romeo and you really are in love with Julia, but she's from the Capulets. You're not allowed to like the Capulets. Uh, you have to pretend like that's not a part of yourself. And what has to happen? Either you have to numb out, uh, you lose sensation, maybe in your body, um, something deteriorates. Uh, you might go, you might go chaotic. Like if the pressure of denying yourself becomes uh, so bad, you might have this angry outburst, or you might have this dissociation. Like what happens in Fight Club? If you don't remember the plot of Fight Club, uh, the main character is trying to fit in with the norms of society so much. He's buying everything from IKEA. He's working this boring ass job, and it's like eating him up inside. He has insomnia. He's dying. He hates it. And then like, he just snaps. He has this like schizophrenic, schizophrenic break takes on this ultra ego, starts a fight club. And so like, that was his, like, his, it got to such a point that he, he's, um, his associated parts of self became personified and like took over his life. Kind of an extreme thing, but we, we can notice a lot of the times when an individual person acts out or does you do something, it's like, why the fuck did I do that destructive thing? Um, it might be because you're denying a part of yourself. That's what shame does to us. It disconnects our, our, ourselves from ourselves. Um, one thing I want to say about the individual versus the collective, or hold on, let me just answer this question real quick. Someone says, I think that shame is not the same as taboo. Shame is hard to accept and is inhibiting. Uh, taboo is a not well accepted act that is actually enticing. Um, the way I'm using taboo is that something that is disapproved of by society, shame is the internalization of that. Kind of a semantical distinction. Um, one thing about, uh, so a lot of things that we consider that society raises us to think of as evil or dark are things that are not good for the collective. Um, Christianity and the, the major monotheistic religions went very deep on denying impulses. If you look at the Inquisition, you look at how they control sexuality. To this day in Islam, uh, women are controlled a lot. Um, you know, there, you can think of all these examples. It's because the collective, the collective, you think of the collective as having, having its own consciousness, or if you think of an ideology or religion or a government or a society as having its own consciousness, just like any individual, they'll do whatever they can to, um, to, to squash any threats. Sex is threatening to the collective. And uh, I just want to make this point about good and evil, because if you look at, if you look at Game of Thrones, one of the evil characters um, in Game of Thrones is Cersei Lannister. If you don't watch Game of Thrones, uh, sorry. Cersei Lannister, she's like, she does the most villainous things. She does like things that we all would probably agree are, are very negative uh, things to do to other people. But why does she do this? One of the great things about Game of Thrones is they really humanize their villains. Why does she do this? Because she wants to protect her children above everything else. Her worldview is as a hard world, as a dog-eat-dog -dog world, and I'm not going to let my children be hurt. So I'm going to do all the hurt to everyone else to protect my children. Is that evil? In, from a collective perspective, it is evil. And if you look at a lot of the villains that we in in, in media that we um, that we kind of glorify, Tony Soprano, um, Walter White, 
they're all doing something damaging to the world for the sake of their family or maybe just like for their own survival. That's all that darkness is. And from a collective perspective, most things that get shamed are simply things that put the individual over the collective. Not to say that individuals should, I'm not voting for anarchy, but this is what causes individual damage. And there is, there's a trade-off when you value the individual versus the collective, but we're talking about you as a person if you're dealing with shame. Okay, so when it comes to taboo sex, and I think this last comment was alluding to that, um, one of the reasons why taboos are such a turn-on, and uh, if, you, if you caught my article on rape, it was called Devils Inside of Us, Devils Inside Us, I also are, um, recorded it for my podcast, so you can listen to it, it's like, I don't know, eight minutes long or something. Um, uh, I, I spoke about uh, a scene where a woman, I was in bed with a woman, and she yelled at me, I want you to rape me, which is an oxymoron, right? Like, you can't want, so if, if you want someone to rape you, it's not rape. But what she was demonstrating is kind of the, the two halves of our consciousness. There's the conscious part, which can use language, and then there's like the unconscious part that um, really wants you to experience things that you personally see as taboo. Why? Because it's a way of reconnecting. So like we see this all the time in like um, when it comes to, let's say you grew up in a racist environment, or maybe you're racist yourself, let's just say. Uh, we've seen a lot, like the whole idea behind jungle fever, this is like a popular term in the 70s, was that all these really racist white guys who hated black women, who said they black women or black people were bad or something like that, they had this urge to have sex with black women. Why? Because their unconscious knew, hey, we don't want to dissociate. I mean, you know, your, 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 your libido left in its natural state probably finds women of every ethnicity attractive. But the fact that you're like saying, oh, black women, no good, your, your unconscious is trying to correct your dissociation, is trying to correct your disapproval and forces it back into your consciousness. Um, same thing if like um, guys who are homophobic, very often, uh, there's like an episode in Seinfeld uh, where George, who's kind of homophobic, can't stop fantasizing about men. Why? Because it's not maybe, maybe he was gay, maybe he wasn't. <clears throat> I don't think if you have a, a fantasy about men necessarily means you're gay, but it's like if you are specifically homophobic, you're forcing like, like, no, being attracted to men is evil, it's wrong. Your unconscious tries to force it back in. And you can see a lot of um, the, you know, I, I started this thread in the Masculine Underground group about like, what, what type of porn do you watch? I was just curious, like, what genres uh, come to you? A lot of times it's stuff that you're trying to correct in your mind. Um, I'll share one, one of mine, actually, um, that was one, one that was more recent for me. Um, you know, I'm a shorter guy. A lot of people don't know this because you see me sitting down in, in, on, online, but I'm 5'6". I don't really think about my height that much. I'm not really, you know, I was more insecure about it when I was younger. I, I don't think about it much, but two years ago, I matched with a girl on Tinder and we were having like this great, like really funny, really flirty conversation back and forth. It like seemed like, oh yeah, we're totally going to like connect. This is going to be amazing. She happened to have in her profile that she was 5'11". And I thought like, oh, she's maybe she's like insecure about her being tall. Oh, I don't care about that. That's fine. But then we met and she saw how tall I was. I stood up. She hugged me and I immediately felt like, oh, like height really matters to her. Like she's not attracted to me because of my height. And it made me upset. Obviously, it hurt my feelings a little bit. And uh, for the next couple months, I was like so like overly attracted to tall women. It's like some part of me, like a part of me wanted to like specifically seduce really tall women. Like I, I, I ended up like uh, being with this woman who's like over six feet and she was attractive also, but I think I was particularly drawn to her because I was trying to like maybe work out in my mind that it's okay that I'm shorter. Like this was all like, but it came out in, in raw sexual desire. Like I became so much more turned on by tall women for this period of time 
And then at some point it kind of fizzled out. And I, I was going to speak about this at the end more, but if you notice you have a taboo shame, um, if you have like something, you, you don't know why you're into blank. Unless it's something that hurts people. I mean, if you have a taboo of like punching people in the face or like something worse than that, you can imagine a lot of very dangerous things in bed. As long as it's not hurting anyone, there's nothing wrong with indulging. Like, you know, and I've, you know, I, I've coached a lot of men with who share their personal secrets. And I've heard a lot of things that like most people say, this is really fucked up. And the, but the thing that's the worst thing is that when a guy himself thinks, oh, what I happen to want is fucked up. It persists. And we're going to talk about this more at the end, but whatever you, the idea I want to give you right now is that whatever you happen to be into, it's okay. It's okay. It's, it's your, it might just be your unconscious working things out. Like I, I've met guys who like, I personally don't think they were pedophiles, but they were for some reason, like they're so drawn to like, or they, they have unconscious fantasies about being with children. And they're really ashamed about it, which I think makes it persist and, and like forces it. Maybe there's, it could be a lot of reasons why they have that. Maybe it's something about power. Maybe it's something around that, but certainly something about shame, certainly something that they disconnected from that they want to, they want to um, retract. Another example, last example, I know I met, I coached a guy whose grandparents were involved in a major genocide and he grew up with like this terrible, terrible guilt that his grandparents who he knew and loved as a child also happened to contribute to like mass murder on a racist level. Um, and they, they contributed to like, uh, I won't go, go into it, but like he, he had crazy, fa the only thing that turned him on was to be tortured. Kind of in a way that he had heard his grandparents tortured some other ethnic group. Like he had this, like it was a way that his unconscious, in my opinion, was trying to correct this dissociation. The solution, even though it's like dark and fucked up and it's fucked up to some people, if he could actually forgive his grandparents and approve of the fact that they contributed to a genocide, he probably, that sexual fantasy would probably loosen up and let go. Okay. I want to move on because I spent a lot of time on these definitions. Um, I just want to say, light, oh, so the other thing is that sex removes the light, dark, moral distinction, which is why it's dangerous to society. If, if um, everyone in society was like, you know what? There is no good or bad. Everything is whatever you do. That can be very damaging. You can't. You can imagine like a city or a country or religion would kind of fall apart if everyone came up with their own personal morality, which is why collectives impose collective morality. And you know, it's easy to look at Christianity or, or something like that, where like the the shaming is very obvious. But even you think of like any Western society, United States of America, um, your workplace your social circle, there are, there's like a range of things that are considered okay. And then everything outside of that is taboo. And if you start digging into that stuff, like people will start to lose approval for you. Um, which brings us to the, the next bit, uh, specific to, uh, men. I just want to make sure I didn't miss anything. Um, inner conflict is kind of natural. Uh, as I mentioned in the Prometheus rising episode, each neural circuit in our consciousness developed kind of as a response to correct flaws in the previous circuit, but that leads to conflict. So like on a political level, our first circuit and our second circuit, which is, you know, our desire for nurturing and our desire for dominance often conflict within ourselves. And you can see in politics, I won't get into that. I talked about that in that episode. Um, but yeah, really important to understand that um, all darkness is, and all embracing your darkness or bringing out your dark masculine is essentially 
is being able to embrace parts of yourself that you previously disapproved of or being able to embrace parts of yourself that society disapproved of or your parents disapproved of or your reference group disapproved of. And you can, you can argue that nothing is really light or dark. They're completely arbitrary. Like if you can really imp- uh, approve of the, of the desire you have to be, uh, I don't know, what's something weird, uh, to have a woman uh, dress her, give you a diaper like a baby, you know, you might be ashamed if you have that genuine desire. But if you can approve of it, it's no longer dark for you. It might be dark for other people because they judge it, but like that's all it is. Or something with power, you, you like choking women or you like, you know, anything. Um, all it is is about approval, and that's completely arbitrary. That's the the thing I want you to get is that there is no nature doesn't see things as right and wrong. Nature, if you watch nature documentaries, nature is metal. Like my favorite Instagram account, even though I'm getting off of Instagram, is nature is metal. It's like all these like gnarly things that happen, and like when a lion kills a gazelle, it is bloody murder, right? That's nature. Nature does not approve of or disapprove of anything. It just is. And when it comes to your darkness or shame, that is humans introducing shame for the sake of morale for the sake of the collective which makes people feel shitty because they have to associate a part of their nature okay part two uh just real quick anybody have questions about part one if you do just pop it in okay part two uh taboos and shame specifically for men and male sexuality so take a sip of water first There are two types of, we can say, uh, masculine shame or taboos around men, uh, certainly nowadays and perhaps through all of human history, but um, last last 50 years, I think it's uh, heightened a lot. The first kind of shame is what we've had uh, for most of human history, um, which is uh, taboos around weakness. Most of the classical views of uh, masculinity mean like are about like men being tough. You, you can think of like from the dawn of uh, agriculture all the way to the 1950s, men had to be tough. There was no room for emotions. There's no room for crying. Right. Um, this is this is like the first part of shame that a lot of men have when they just feel like they're not good enough. They're not strong enough. They're not virile enough. They're not sexy enough. They're not smart enough. They're not enough. Um, the reason why we have this taboo is that uh, throughout human history or throughout nature, uh, humans, like most mammals, believe in the rule of might. The person with the the strongest ability to fight, that's the person who determines the collective reality. Um, The alpha male, the alpha gorilla, beats up the other males and now everyone sleeps with him. He's the the shot caller, right? Um, The beta males... Except that, I mean, not with gorilla. I don't, I don't know if, enough about gorillas, but certain pack animals. I've always wondered, like, why does the beta male stick around and accept the fact that he's not going to sleep with anyone? Well, because he, he he's better off with the collective. Even even uh, being sexless and never passing on his genes, the beta male is better off being in the collective than being without the collective. Um, lions and gorillas, unfortunately, haven't evolved like humans to band together so all the beta males could like team up on the alpha male. But in, in those uh, in those situations, they follow the rule of might, which is um, which is still within us, even though we've evolved to, to follow laws and character and stuff. The, the, the inherent rule of might is still within us. And it's, it's a particularly testosterone driven virtue. Nowadays, men, I think one of the crises, right, one of the cri- there's three things I think contribute to the extra shaming that modern men have. Um, one is like technology and, and uh, 
you know, we could talk about porn. That's another episode. Um, there's feminist culturalization, which is uh, third wave feminism in particular. Or certain, I shouldn't even mention the waves. Militant feminism has added shame uh, on men and boys. Um, but one, one, one other aspect, which is kind of just uh, also nature, is that nowadays most men don't need to hunt, don't need to fight wars. Um, we don't need to build our own homes. Like a lot of the functions of testosterone, a lot of why masculinity exists to do shit in, in reality, to make things happen, to build things, we don't really need to do anymore. Like myself, I'm on a computer most of the time. I'm thinking abstract thought is a function of masculinity, but I don't, you know, most of us have to go out of our way to do something physical and testosterone inducing. We have to go to a gym to lift weights. We have to take a class in jujitsu because there's no fighting to, to be done. I'm not saying that we should go back to fighting, but this is like the whole reason why we have testosterone-driven impulses, why we have testosterone and, and masculinity is for certain functions that are kind of obsolete. But this, this uh, tab, which is, I mean, I should say, this is why the weakness taboo exists because through much of human history, if a man wasn't strong enough to fight off invaders, to hunt, to, to build things, to protect his family, he, he was really bad for the collective. Like a, uh, a tribe doesn't need men who are, are weak in character or in physicality. Um, and that's why we have that taboo inherently, even though our culture is evolving in a way that we don't really need those functions anymore. Um, however, one place where this still does show up is sex. Because no matter what ideologies we put in our mind and whatever new morality taboos and shaming of masculinity, when it comes to our biology, our biology still runs on those primitive uh, impulses, which is why... One of the, I mean, it's not the saddest thing, but a kind of sad thing that I see a lot in um, in uh, sex classes and workshops uh, I have participated in, BDSM classes, for instance, is almost pretty much every BDSM class, intro-level BDSM class I've seen has a specific type of couple, sometimes many of this couple, which is a feminist couple. They've been married, let's say, 10 years. Um, the guy is really feminist. The woman's really feminist. He supported her and like being in the workplace and maybe he took on like domestic roles and they flipped the gender dynamics and he's been super accommodating to her and he's been like everything that a good male feminist should be, but she doesn't want to fuck him. And like 10 years into their marriage, she's like, I wish he would just dominate me. And the guy is like, what are you talking about dominating you? For like for, for the last 20 years, I've been learning from women, like don't be dominant, don't do this. It's like, all those ideologies are nice and not to say, you know, that, you know, feminism hasn't had some po I mean, feminism has had positive things. One of the grave negative externalities is this idea that men shouldn't be men. And you and the the place where it corrects itself is sex because sex runs on our primitive, you know, a, a woman gets turned on by what she gets turned on by. It doesn't matter what her belief around power is. And actually I'll say a lot I've I've dated a lot of feminists and I'll talk about my another one of my personal taboo weird things, but I did a lot of feminists, I think partly because uh, I've seen them as the hardest challenge to connect with. And I, you know, it's kind of an ego thing. I'll talk about that later. But um, uh, something I've heard from a lot of feminist women is that they feel this internal turmoil. They feel this darkness within inside of them about the fact that they believe in feminism. They believe in being a, a strong working woman and being independent and not needing a man. But fuck, when they're in the bedroom, they just love to be submissive and they can't help it. It's like they don't get turned on by a guy who isn't strong enough. They get turned on by a guy who can dominate them and, and let them feel safe in femininity. It's all, it's, it's all very primitive stuff. A lot of women like being choked. A lot of women like being spanked. Uh, someone just commented, well-timed. A lot of women being like fucked hard. Not everyone, not all the time, certainly. But these are like inherently 
pre-conscious uh, pre-conscious mechanisms that are within men and within women. And I'll and I'm going to speak about BDSM towards the end, but. Um, I didn't get it for a long time because my conditioning was so against men being dominant. I grew up in liberal New York. I also grew up in an Asian household where you don't, you know, dominance is not a thing. Masculinity is kind of lacking in most Asian cultures. Maybe talk about that as well. But um, I learned the value of being dominant because I met so many women who were like begging me to be dominant and were kind of bored with me if I couldn't be dominant. And um in doing that, kind of doing this for external reasons, which isn't the best reason to do things, I did start to notice, you know what? There's something inherently real for me when I take on this role. Anyway, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but that's the first type of taboo is taboos around weakness and shame around weakness. So like where you think you're not good enough, you think you're not attractive enough, you think you're not dominant enough. Those are the, that's the first type of taboo that many men experience, which causes them shame. Very often shows up in the bedroom. Uh, if you ever get physically dominated, the same thing. Um, and the friend zoning is another exp- uh, another um, expression of this type of shame, where a woman doesn't see you as a sexual candidate because you're not potent enough, you're not powerful enough, you don't, you're not strong, you're not virile enough. She sees you as just a friend. She sees you as harmless. Um, so the first taboo, this weakness taboo, is about lack of power. Um, and the important thing to note, because I think many men, and I think nowadays, yeah, anyway, many men have this taboo, of, like have this shame where they think they're not strong enough. Um, a lot of times because of this conditioning that is not okay to be strong. This is a collective taboo, which is very damaging to individual men. I'm going to tell you, this is my own brainwashing that I'm trying to incept into you because I think it's healthier. It's important for you. It's the best thing for you and the people you love is to be strong, is to be dangerous. Dangerous in the sense that you are capable of danger. You are capable of harm. You're capable of doing things. Um, Women like dominance in the bedroom because they want to know that you're capable of handling attacker who would do her harm. If you are, if you, if you, if you're really soft and weak and you can't handle her, then how could you possibly handle an invader? All this is primal stuff, but it's important. A lot, a lot of it shows up in our moral character. If you can't stand up for something, if you can't take on a challenge. Um, then she can't actually trust you. You're actually not fulfilling your role as a man in a, if you ever choose to be in a sexually polarized situation, whether in a sexual relationship or ha- handling the masculine role within a group or a team or a family, being the, the dominant head of something. It's your, um, it's your responsibility to have the capability of being dangerous. Um, this is Jordan Peterson's um, interpretation of the biblical verse, uh, the meek will inherit the earth. I don't necessarily agree with the interpretation, but I, I believe in the message he's saying, which is the whole idea behind the, the, the meek will inherit the earth is actually a mistranslation. People think meek, you know, you think of like someone who's weak and shy. But um, according to Jordan Peterson, uh, the word meek, as was in the original language, I assume Hebrew, um, was someone who knew to knew restraint, like he knew not to take his sword out of his sheath. But he was so strong that he didn't have to wave his sword around every time there was conflict. He could keep it because he was so secure in his ability to handle shit that he didn't need to rush into anger. That's what was meant by meek when the meek inherited the earth. So anyway, that's the first taboo. And uh, to, to overcome this shame, you need to understand that it is a virtuous thing to be strong. It is a virtuous thing to be capable of harm. Not that you should do harm, but if you, if you can't... If you are not capable of harm, then you're kind of worthless because you're not capable of anything virtuous either. Which brings us to the second taboo, which is why a lot of men are stuck in weakness. The second taboo, if the first taboo is lack of power, the second taboo is misuse of power. 
So um, this is like this is essentially the the crux of Me Too. Um, someone someone asked me about Me Too, and in, in you know, so I'll address that here. Um, this is uh, taboos around harm. It's like, oh, my sexual desires are too dangerous. If I express myself, I'll I'll violate a woman, or like my what I'm into is too weird. And it doesn't even have to be sexual. It could be like. Uh, the way I want to express myself in the world is a little too braggadocio, a little too tough, a little too whatever. Um, and and uh, a lot of people fear the judgment. And um, uh, this actually reminds me of, um, uh, I read this in a fitness magazine a long time ago. It was called uh, Big Breasted Blonde Syndrome. Um, it's coined by T.C. Luama, uh, who's a writer at Testosterone Nation, fitness magazine. Um, Big breasted blonde syndrome is that whenever ever anybody says a big bre- sees a big breasted blonde, what do we assume? We assume she's dumb. But of course, there's nothing. There's no correlation between beauty and a good rack and beautiful hair and dumbness. Is that a lot of us, because of judgment, because of our own insecurity, think, oh, if someone is so physically gifted, then they can't possibly be intellectually gifted too. Not the case. Uh, same thing. I mean, I think he was uh, saying his, his argument was something like, don't be ashamed of like liking to have big muscles and stuff. Um, and and uh, this is important because the, we call this tall poppy syndrome as well. Like if, if you stand up too tall, you get cut. So a lot of uh, certain collectives, I mean, it's common in cultures like New Zealand uh, where everyone tries to stay small so that the collective doesn't judge them because if they get too big, the collective judges them. Here's the thing, no matter what reference group you're in, the collective will most likely judge you, right? And we're talking about non-sexual things. This is, this is a bigger topic than just sexual shame. I'll explain, like, for, for myself, like, I could not really grow into the person I wanted to be until I left my, uh, the reference group that I was born into. I, I have some great friends in New York. I love them. They're great. We're, we're very different. I think uh, I just naturally didn't really fit in with them, even though they're great people. And every time I started to ex- express myself and gain my own personal power, they would laugh at me. They would judge me. They would somehow make fun of me. It's a whole crabs in the barrel thing. Not because they're bad people. They're great people. But like it, the way that I am naturally was not relatable to them. So for them to continue to relate with me, they would have to change. They didn't want to change. So they would you know, cut me down to bring me down hear this all the time. I, when, I, when I'm talking to a guy who's having trouble like breaking out of his old patterns, very often I'll, I'll, it's because he's stuck in this reference group that relates to him as a small person. Sometimes you have to leave the reference group in order to grow and then you can come back as a new person. Um, but this is kind of like, it's also a, a universal type of taboo, which is when you are too powerful or too strong, the collective will shame you and say, oh, you're going to misuse your power. Not always the case. Some powerful people do misuse their power. It happens all the time. There's, there's a reason why people try to cut you down because when you have personal power, you can use it for harm and they want to defend themselves. So they try to, um, this is very common in, in today's day and age to shame power. It's kind of like, it's kind of one of the imperatives of like uh, extreme liberal media right now is that any, any man in power is evil. It doesn't matter what he does with his power, like just simply having power is evil. And um, this is not a good thing to take on as a man with shame because you need to be powerful. If you want to be attractive, you want to be good to your family, if you want to be beneficial to your society, you need to be powerful. Hopefully you use your power for good, whatever that power is, whether it's physical strength or business acumen or wisdom or social ability, whatever it is, like you need to be powerful to do anything, right? People, people kind of say like, oh, it's nice, you know, look at that person, he's so harmless because they don't have to fear you. You have to be feared to be potent or useful in any form. You have to be feared to be attractive. That's the whole Machiavellian thing. It's better to be feared than loved, which I'm not saying that's necessarily true, but that's the crux of, you know, that's, it is a virtue of a sense. And 
a lot of guys are so afraid of being powerful that they they self-flagellate and self-shame for having anything potent, whether it's a controversial idea or a raw libidinous desire or lust for a person. And they, they shame it and they squash it and they put it into a box and dissociate it. It creates shame inside themselves, which leads to all the stuff that we're talking about here. This disconnection from uh, disconnection from parts of yourself. So if the first type of taboo is rule of might, um, the second type of taboo is rule of law. And there's something I, I, don't, this, I just thought this was interesting because um, when I was, I think, 20, I did a study abroad in Singapore. And I had this um, Chinese professor who was explaining the, the different ways that Chinese people do business and uh, Westerners do business. So Westerners, for, for many centuries, we've believed, we in West, Western culture has believed in the rule of law, right? So like everything that we do has a contract and like the contracts are upheld in court and, you know, the semantics of the contract are very important. That's why lawyers get paid the big bucks. Um, but in China, at least, you know, historically he was saying, in China, they might have contracts. I mean, they, do, they go through the formalities, especially if they're doing business with Western people. But the way you do business in China, they don't follow rule of law, they follow rule of man, which instead of logos, instead of like rational arguments, what they really follow is ethos, which is character. So he, the example he gave me is like, if you wanna do business with someone in China, the first thing you gotta do is like, go to his home and you, you have drinks. You guys get drunk together, you socialize, you open up, you, you share things about each other, you learn secrets about each other, you get hammered. And then when things are feeling good, then you bring out the contracts and you sign it. It's a formality. But the example he gave is if you do something uh, that goes against character, is like character violating. If you, you know, that's saving face is a big thing in, uh, in Asian cultures. If you, let's say the example he gave was um, if we do business and your son happens to be uh, visiting my city and I don't do my social obligation of showing him around, giving him a place to sleep and feeding him, then, he, then he's validated and ripping up the contract, right? They believe in rule of men. Um, different types of taboos because, uh, yeah, anyway, the, the, the rule of might is very individual. Um, it's like if I can bash you over the head better than you can bash me over the head, I determine the taboos. Um, rule of man is a, is a little more abstracted. It's like, it's like who's got the better character? If, if our, whoever has sound character, they can contribute to the collective taboos of right and wrong. Um, and then in the West, we have the most extreme and most extract, which is rule of law. You could be a weak person, you could be a shitty person morally, but if your contract says the right things, then the collective, the United States government or European government or whatever will enforce it for you. Um, this might seem academic and like, what does that have to do? It's that I want you to really understand that taboos and embedded shame are really arbitrary, right? If you are into something weird that no one else is into, but you find 10 other people who are into that weird thing and you create your own little social circle, your own little community, that is no longer a taboo and you can be yourself, right? Okay, as long as you're not harming people, which is maybe, I mean, I guess if you really wanna play devil's advocate, there probably are some people who don't see harming people as a taboo, in which case they can go do that and feel good about themselves. Um, but anyway, that's, that's, that's separate from our argument. Oh, and the last thing I want to say on this, um, you know, there's the weakness taboo and the harming taboo. The most abstract thing, which is a very masculine um, paradigm, is integrity. Might be a controversial uh, thing to say. I think maybe some women or feminists might get upset that I say this, that integrity is a, is a very masculine or testosterone-driven idea. Um, if, you've, if you date women, you probably know, or if you have 
uh, close female friends or women in your family, you probably know that someone who's very feminine, oxytocin-driven rather than testosterone-driven, um, their emotional reality takes precedent over their logical reality. Their pathos is more important than their logos. They might try to act logos in, in their working world because uh, our society is so formed around a male paradigm, around a logical paradigm. But if you've ever dated a woman, when she gets in her emotions, it doesn't matter what she said a second ago. It doesn't matter what she agreed to. Her emotions in this moment take precedent. The extreme opposite of this is what we would call integrity, which is no matter what, how you're feeling, no matter what the circumstances are, integrity says your word is your bond. You have to follow your word. So like a written contract is like a way of enforcing integrity. Why does this matter? Because it's a purely masculine abstraction of right. The reason why integrity and we can say chivalry and like certain, like a man lives by his code and like certain ad, ad, adages like that. The reason why we think this way is that um, when men were left to the rule of might, when men, like, you know, in the, in the lawless, uh, you know, when you had the warlords and everyone was just carrying an axe or a club and whoever's like the biggest, baddest dude uh, can just fight each other. That's pretty close to anarchy. And for a masculine society to develop, they needed to have some sort of cultural norm of saying, like, even when no one is looking, I'm going to do the thing that's right by the collective. That's essentially what integrity is. Not to say it's good or bad, but like, um, it's important to note that as well. Uh, that instead of, uh, you know, the first type of morality, if you go back to like controlling sex, the first kind of morality is like um, fear of judgment from the collective, right? If I do something weird sexually, if I sleep with the wrong person, if I do the wrong thing in social behavior, the collective might ostracize me. Don't want that, so I'm going to do the thing that the collective wants. But when society's got so big that you're not necessarily being seen by everyone, you know, like in a, in a, in a community of 3,000 people, not everyone's being observed at all times. Instead, they had to incept this idea of integrity so that masculine individuals, testosterone-driven people who can do harm physically, still think, okay, even though no one's looking at me, I'm going to do what's right by the collective. It's a beautiful thing. I'm not saying integrity is bad. I think integrity is a purely, is a particularly masculine virtue. But if what your perception of integrity is, is going very harshly against what you net your instincts say, it might be, um, it might be uh, a belief system that's not good for you. I mean, there's different expressions of integrity. Um, so anyway, which actually brings us to kind of as a counterpoint to the final piece, which is uh, that uh, the healing of shame is returning to truth. Shame is saying, shame, when we experience shame, we are dissociating from a part of ourselves and saying, oh, I'm not really into that. That's not really a part of me. I don't really feel that way. I don't have this insecurity. I don't have this, uh, you know, this gnarly desire for things. Like, oh, that's not a part of me, but it's not true. Uh, the way to heal shame is bringing us back to truth. So something, um, something that, an adage that was said when I was in the matriarchal cult, which I think is true, is that uh, the truth carries the most sensation. If you're speaking with someone and you can't like feel anything, you're numbing out, they might be lying. They might be talking about something that has no meaning. Um, if you're saying something that's real and vulnerable and like meaningful and true, you feel sensation. And this is something you can kind of look at this metaphorically, but I think it's pretty close to, to observable and accurate um, that uh, bring yourself back to truth. And we can say this is like the masculine way through via integrity is bringing yourself is, is dropping your shame. So this is the whole thing of how the hell do you drop your shame and embrace your dark masculine? Um, real quick, someone said a com uh, commented, can integrity also be seen as between the relationship? I'm not sure what you mean there. 
uh, like between each other. I think that matters. But I would argue, and you know, people might get upset on both sides when I say this, is that if you're dating a feminine person, you're kind of uh, foolish if you assume that everything she says is going to be like if, if everything she says is going to be purely accurate. Like if you date feminine people, you should at least be aware of the fact that when she's emotional in particular, that might take precedent over the things she agreed to. That doesn't mean she's a bad person. doesn't mean she's evil. It does mean she's quote unquote bad in accordance with a patriarchal set of collective norms. Like it's taboo to not follow what you said in a patriarchal environment. And I would say, you know, if I was speaking with a man and he wasn't following his word, I would judge him partially. I would be like, you know, like you're not upholding your integrity. Whereas I probably wouldn't, I probably wouldn't judge a feminine woman or, you know, for following her emotions instead of what she said. That's her, that's her following her, her truth and her nature. All of this de-shaming yourself is bringing yourself back to nature. So shame is not only a dissatisfaction with parts of yourself, it also can be a dissatisfaction with reality. So like you may have heard this, uh, the self-help cliche that what you judge in other people, you judge in yourself. Here's how it actually you know, breaks down. If you see other things, other people, and you find it really particularly hard to approve of, you're like, fuck that person for being an attention whore. Uh, fuck that person for always playing the victim. Fuck that person for always taking the lead or like trying to show how awesome they are. If you have a particularly visceral like uh, thing where you can't help judging that person really harshly, there's probably a part of you that resonates with that thing and you're judging it in yourself and therefore it's causing you this extra, right? Uh, this is something I, I speak about in the mask and archetype class that I call relationship mapping. I do think all of our emotionally charged relationships um, map to parts of ourselves. So like if you have like uh, hatred for a certain type of I say, I say, I hear this a lot when people are constantly judging narcissists in their lives. Like, I always date narcissists, or that person's such a narcissist, 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 narcissist. Almost always, with a little digging, that person themselves wish they could take more attention. They've shamed the part of themselves that likes to get attention, or like that they shame the part of themselves that likes to be a little more self-centered. So, in order to justify the fact that they've shamed it in themselves, they have to shame in other people. One way to heal a certain kind of shame in yourself is to notice, oh, do I judge this in other people? How can I approve of this attention whore? How can I approve of this narcissist? How can I approve of this, this liar and cheater, right? If you can approve of that, not to say that you think oh, those things are okay, but if you can get to the point where you can appreciate who they are as a person and just approve of them as a person, you'll probably start, you will probably let, let yourself reintegrate that part of yourself that you've been shaming, right? What's it within us is without us and all, and all that jazz. Someone asked, is, um, is taking drugs not having integrity with the collective because uh, you, you are harming yourself and therefore the collective? Uh, I would disagree with that statement. I don't know that necessarily taking drugs is harming yourself. Um, I don't think this is what you're asking, but I, one of the reasons why uh, collective bodies, governments, religions tend to be anti-drug is that drug use is damaging to the collective in the sense on both ends like when it does damage let's say heroin addiction and opiates addiction like crystal meth like these really damaged people which damage the society they also make people less productive they make them a burden on society they often lead to people causing crime which is harmful to society but i'd also argue on the other end like things like lsd and cannabis um that's also historically been controlled by collectives because they have people think alternatively. They start to think like, ah, yeah, America is kind of just like a collective agreement. It's maybe it's not such a real thing or maybe I don't need to follow my religion or maybe, you know, 
so yeah, I think that's why most religions, uh, if not ban or like, you know, shame drug use, they try to control it. I mean, there's some religions based around uh, hallucinogenic stuff, but they, they have very strict ritual around it. Ritual also is a way of getting people to be on the same page. You pray to the same thing, you chant in the same way, you're all kind of syncing up and maybe letting go of your, your um, individual impulses, which don't go along with the group and instead... You know, okay, we're all praying to this thing. We're all thinking this thing. Not to say it's a bad thing. You know, like if you have a really bad set of mental programming and there's this group that has a great set of programming, well, there's like a, like a group of guys that you look up to or like a club or a religion. I mean, I'm not saying I mean, religions have helped a lot of people because they've been in these bad negative head spaces. And like, hey, even Christianity can get people to believe in themselves and do better things. They also, I mean, everything. But, but the, the whole thing with the collective is that no one quite can possibly fit exactly in with the collective norm. There's no, it's impossible. Um, anyway, so there's always going to be some shame. Uh, all right, so the dark masculine, as we, we mentioned right in the beginning of this, darkness is completely arbitrary. Darkness is just what someone, ha if, if someone disapproves of something, it's dark. It's dark to them. It might be dark to society, it might be dark to you. If you feel ashamed of something that's true for you, it's dark. that's part of your darkness. Hopefully you can embrace it and stop feeling ashamed and technically it's no longer dark for you, but it might be dark to society. You like choking bitches? You like saying using the word bitch? That's dark to most of society right now. People would probably judge me for that. That's a dark thing in myself. Uh, or women who like being called bitches. Also something that's judged by uh, feminist media. Okay. Um, okay. The reason why the whole idea behind the dark masculine is a term in itself and the reason why women crave darkness in men uh, you know, they, they like the bad boy. They like the guy. Many women like the, the guy who's capable of dominating them, you know, going back to the, the, the rule of might and stuff like that, is that a man who can express this, his taboo aspects of nature is more likely a complete man. The nice guy, the guy who only shows the things that fit the collective taboo is certainly not a complete man. Like anyone who seems to fit picture perfect with the collective norms can't possibly, as we mentioned, you can't possibly match the collective norms perfectly. So if, it's, if someone seems like they do, they almost certainly um, are being fake in some way and being incomplete. And how can you trust someone who's being incomplete? It doesn't matter what your political ideologies are. When it comes to sex, what we find attractive is realness. Our sexuality, our, bi our biological mechanisms run on things that are absolutely real. Nature does not shame the lion for eating the gazelle. Nature does not, uh, you know, you pick any, any nature example that you might be thinking, oh my God, that's horrible. Um, it was interesting, uh, when I watch uh, nature shows with friends, or actually here in Thailand, um, nature happens all the time. You know, this other day, uh, a baby bird fell out of a tree. It was, it was like, kind of sad because it couldn't fly yet and its, its parents were feeding it worms. It was all happening like maybe like five meters from me. Like I was just watching this. And I was like, oh shit, like there's a neighborhood cat that comes around all the time this cat might eat the baby bird and all and all the people who live in this uh, community like a lot of them were like a lot of the women in particular like oh my god the baby bird's gonna get eaten we're gonna we're, we're gonna watch you know this is so terrible but um but I, I in, my, in my head and I, I said this is like oh cool I'm get to see like you know a real predator eat real prey not to say that one's better than the other but like you know it's interesting which side you uh, side with um, I think maybe part of it is the fact that uh, a lot of my younger life was learning to embrace the predator in me, which is just as real. I mean, we all have a prey in us as well. Um, we can argue, I mean, at different parts of my life, I probably have had to learn to be more submissive and okay with receiving, uh, be okay with being consumed. 
But I do think, you know, I do think that most men, most people, testosterone-driven, testosterone is a predator chemical. Um, you know, you, you increase your testosterone, you're going to feel more dominant. I do think it is a more natural thing. And all of what we're talking about is going back to your nature. Um, someone said, what about Will Smith? Uh, Will Smith, yeah, I mean, he was joking. Okay, well, I think you were talking about the taboo, someone who can like, perfectly fit. I mean, there's some people that seem that way. You know, Tom Hanks is another one I could think of. That guy just seems perfect. Like, how could you pin anything on him? Um, but who knows? It, it could be that he's, he's perfect. But, I mean, someone might even judge, uh, you know, Will Smith is polyamorous. Some people would judge that. I mean, everyone's got something, right? Like, no one can possibly fit. And also, I mean, we don't have just, I mean, in our society, if you, let's say you live in America or some Western country, there's not just one collective, which is, which is just, just to show it's impossible to meet all the collectives. Like, there's a collective nor- set of norms for... Uh, Americans. There's a collective set of norms for conservative Americans, a collective for liberal Americans, for Christian Americans, for Jewish Americans. And like none of these norms, there's no universal set of norms. Um, one of the more universal sets of norms that we have in the West in, in the West is like, don't kill people. But you could probably think of situations where even actually even, even America, I take that back. Um, uh, in the American South, I think there's some quote, I think by a judge in the American South that no Southern jury will convict a man for shooting uh, another man who insulted his wife. Because in the American South, the collective norm is that it's actually taboo to not kill someone if they insulted your wife. So like, you know, um, you know, there, there is, there are no universal taboos. You can think of like the most nasty, terrible thing that all of us would probably think, oh my God, that's terrible. There's probably a handful of people in the world who's like, nah, actually, I'm kind of into that weird shit, you know? Whatever it is. Um, okay. Uh, women crave, the reason why dark masculinity is attractive is because women crave completeness. You know, if you want to mate, like her biological mechanisms, want to mate with a complete man, someone who's not being fake, um, which means you have both potency and character. So, like, if you look at the two taboos of weakness and misuse of power, uh, you got to have potency, you got to be strong. Uh, Ideally, you also have character. You also be a good guy. But if you look at if you look at the sexual behavior of a lot of people, strength is more important than than, than uh, virtue. It's just I mean the the strength mechanism is a more primitive thing than virtue. Most women would prefer a guy who's both strong and has good character. We can see all the time in the way that you know groupies flock to rock stars who treat them like shit, or like the whole typical thing of even in middle school the girls like the bad boy. Why? Because they even though they know he's going to treat them like shit. He's a little, I mean, the strength is more important to her, her ability to get turned on than him being a nice guy. Great if you can have both, but the, I mean, the, the more primal thing is the strength piece. Uh, yeah, biologically, she prefers potency. Um, and the, the whole thing behind the bad boy, the reason why the, the bad boy is attractive on a social level is that he's willing to challenge the collective norm. Like if he's bad by you know, p- collective definitions, he's breaking rules why because those rules are not natural like man-made law is very is many degrees separated from nature right like we have the rule of law we have the rule of man a rule of character uh we have the rule of might which is and the rule of might is closer to nature not to say that we should determine our ethics based on who has the biggest hammer but um biologically that's how we're wired um okay we're gonna end this here with my, I said all of this to hopefully incept you with more conducive beliefs around your expression, whether it's sexual or not, your masculine expression. We're gonna end here with the things, the, the actual action steps, which are simple enough. And I don't, you know, I could have just made a, an eight minute video with these action steps, 
but I don't think they necessarily land because the best advice is pretty simple when it comes to anything. Just like, I mean, most people can figure out, oh, here's the thing I should do, right? Um, but actually believing it and internalizing it requires a lot more, which is why I try to put in stories, like stories put, like get it into your unconscious. Hopefully, I hope this is, this is my aim with this stuff. All right. The overall solution to getting over your shame and embracing what you previously may consider darkness or what other people might call your dark masculinity is radical approval. Uh, some people call this self-love. So some people call this, uh, you know, whatever. Um, and I would summarize this by the sentence, I got your back. One difference between self-love, the way that most self-help people talk about it, uh, or more, more feminine sides of personal development talk about it, and what I think is more true for the typical male, the typical um, typical testosterone-driven person. Someone just asked what the lives posted to the group. Uh, answer that. Uh, yes, the live, uh, the Facebook live of this video, the recording will be in the group. Also, uh, please subscribe to my podcast on iTunes or Spotify. Um, the audio recording of this all goes there. I'd appreciate a rating as well. Anyway, what was I saying? The uh, masculine self-love is different. I have another video on this, but I'll repeat this. I think this is critical. Uh, masculine self-love, if you are a testosterone-driven individual, is not about just patting yourself on the back. You know, the, in the 90s and the 80s, on the East Coast, it was in the 90s, East Coast America, we had the advent of the participation trophy. One of the most damaging things to millennial self-esteem, but also specifically male self-esteem, because male self-esteem, your, your androgen system, your testosterone uh, receptors in your body uh, thrive on overcoming challenges. You know, this is why uh, we have that taboo of uh, men should not be weak, right? That's kind of a universal thing, as close to universal in, in uh, male society, although nowadays people are kind of coddling men, which is so, so, it's so against nature for men because boys, men, they need to experience challenge to develop real self-esteem. So the way to experience real self-esteem is not to be like, oh, it's okay, you don't have to challenge yourself, you're good, you know, I mean, all right. it's a little nuanced because on one hand, I do want you know kids, everyone to know you are good at the way you are, but it's not that whatever you do is virtuous, right? Winning is important. I talk about the winning, winner effect all the time. The winner effect is a real biological phenomenon, whereas when you successfully accomplish a challenge that you perceive as meaningful, it doesn't matter what it is, it could be arbitrary, it could be a soccer game, it could be an arm wrestling match, it could be succeeding in business, it could be being elected president, it doesn't matter. When you experience a win, in your definition of a win, you have a spike in testosterone and your, your body grows more androgen receptors. So your body becomes more sensitive to testosterone. You actually become more manly when you win. Why this matters? Because if you, if you have a Y chromosome, this is more of your natural state. This is you becoming more of yourself. I know people argue like, oh, there's no universal definition of masculinity. I agree. I, I mean, by many people's definition of masculinity, I'm not a, necessarily a masculine guy. I mean, it depends on your definition. But one thing that is like beyond abstraction is testosterone. We all agree that's the male sex hormone. Every man I know, no matter how sensitive or what your ideology is, if you follow the virtues that reward you with testosterone and dopamine, the winter effect also affects dopamine, same way, um, you are becoming more of your biological self. Is that your entire self? I mean, I'm throwing these caveats because I, I have a feeling that someone's going to get their panties in a bunch about this. Um, but I, 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 I wouldn't say this if I didn't think it was absolutely true for male mental health and happiness, right? So the sentence is... I got your back self. It's not, you're good no matter what. It's that no matter what, whether you win or lose, I got your back self. 
why is this a critical uh why is this a critical statement because when we are ashamed whether it's because shame of failure or shame of misuse of power or shame of an awkward moment or or someone else casting shame on us like oh you're you're against the norm we're gonna shame you um it's a dissociation of from self and that causes so much internal turmoil so much shittiness whether you're in a job that you hate or you're you followed a career path because your parents wanted to but you didn't want to or you didn't do the thing you didn't express you didn't tell the woman you love that you loved her because of some social reason or some fear of awkwardness like it, it eats you up inside why because you are abandoning yourself the the way to not abandon yourself is to not abandon yourself and, and tell yourself i got your back and like I mean, I, I think this sentence is so magical in times that I have doubted myself or felt shitty. It actually wasn't the external f uh, challenge. It wasn't even the external failure because you're going to fail. If you're actually challenging yourself half the time, I mean, sometimes you're going to fail. No one's perfect, right? But the difference between failing and then like being crippled by it and experiencing the loser effect, which is also a phenomenon where your testosterone drops, which might happen to a degree. Instead of getting stuck in that, oh my God, I'm a loser. I, I should never challenge myself again. Is telling yourself, you know what? You did your best, but I got your back, speaking to yourself. It's so critical because one of the worst things uh, for shame of any kind, and I think I think this is uh, you know particularly going, I mean, kind of an epidemic in, in especially with younger men, is, um, uh, and actually this is, this is beyond, this is everything. This is true in addiction, this is true in depression, um, is shame self-propagates. One of the ironies is, it's like, let's say, let's say you're like, okay, I want to, I want to experience the winner effect. I'm going to kick ass in life. I'm going to set up my goals board, whatever. And like, I'm going to do, I'm going to, I'm going to go to the gym every day. And then I'm, and then you miss a day. Or like, I see, you see this a lot in, um, in the PMO communities and the NoFap communities. Like they're trying to like, no fap, no fap, no fap. Oh fuck. I relapsed. Right. I, I watched porn. Oh my God. I watched porn one time. I'm a loser. They shame themselves and self-flagellate so much that they're only they're encouraging more uh, compulsive behavior. They're encouraging because like that compulsive behavior, whether it's to masturbate or drink alcohol or whatever, it's a way of like self-medicating against the shame. Like you're harming yourself with your own judgment, so you got to do something extra harmful to like to not to numb out or not feel so bad. But if you shame yourself, like oh my god, you drank another drink or you, you masturbated when you said you weren't going to, yes, it's a violation of integrity. But if you say, now I'm a bad person for this, like, oh, fuck you, self. You say something terrible to yourself. You're only encouraging yourself to, do, to act out more. You're only, you're only propagating your, you know, your, um, yeah, you're letting your, your, your stream propagate. Because, uh, so the, the, the whole I got your back statement is about, you know, separating your, your, who you are as a being from the action. Your actions are going to have wins and losses. You're going to lose sometimes. But who you are as a person, you can still support yourself. You can still be on your own team. That's like that's the that's the crux of self-love or, you know, a good internal relationship for men is being on your own team, not not challenging yourself. Anyway. Um so if you if you caught the podcast I did with Carolyn Elliott on existential kink, highly recommend the book. She has kind of like a a more a darker or more aggressive way of dealing of like uh experiencing self-love like uh you know there's like this there's a sedona method which is kind of a lighter way where it's like whatever you're feeling can you let it go whatever you're feeling can you welcome it can you accept it that's great and i, and I think that that's that's the same thing we're saying here can you just like approve of what's true um but sometimes when it comes to like a real deep dark shame the really deep embedded shame to just say like oh i just approve of this thing i approve of the fact that uh, I can't satisfy a woman. I approve of the fact that I'm mean to my family. Oh, I just approve. Like sometimes, if it's like really a deep 
insecurity or fear or shame, that's not good enough. So she recommends kind of sexualizing it, which is in the same way a, a kinky submissive would be like, get off on it. Like, oh yeah, like, can you, I mean, I, I recommend listening to that episode to really get the idea behind existential kink, but it's like, can you derive pleasure in indulging from this insecurity? I know it sounds weird, but actually I'll, I'll go back to my, uh, the earlier like taboo fantasy, I mean, not taboo, it depends on what your definition is, but like my, my, my sexual fantasy, like I got rejected by a very tall woman because I'm short. It made me feel insecure. I naturally like became super drawn to tall women. Like, I'll, it's kind of embarrassing, but whatever taboo, I even started watching uh, gigantus porn, which is like, they're like cartoons, but like there's like a really tiny guy and a really giant woman. Kind of embarrassing to share, but here I am. We're going to get to why this is important. Um, I let myself indulge in this, like really get off on the fact of like, okay, some tall women are going to reject me because of my height, or like at least this happened once, right? And uh, I got off on it, I experienced pleasure from it, and I kind of let it go. Like, and then I don't, you know, I don't think about it anymore. And I think I would argue the reason why people have these weird taboo fetishes sometimes, whether, I mean, I'd say like, the desire for incest. A lot of people uh, are into incest porn. Not that you want to actually sleep with your parents or your siblings or something, but it might actually be you feel disconnection from your family and this desire to like watch incest porn is like some way like if you're unconscious forcing you back into connection or forcing you back into approval. Like if, if you can like, I know this sounds weird and taboo and maybe gross, but like if you can fuck your mom in your mind or you can have sex with uh you know, it's like, it's like you can't possibly feel disconnected. I think one of the reasons why MILF porn is so popular with young men is that it's a kind of a way of like overcoming the mother complex of like, oh, if I can imagine myself having sex with a hot mother figure, then I can't possibly be intimidated by maternal. If I can see myself as a peer sexually to a, a mother-like woman, I can't possibly be dominated by my mother at the same time. These are theories, can't really prove them, but I, I believe them to be true. Uh, someone asked, uh, is accepting oneself at the current place required for moving to a newer place? I would say so. I would say, I mean, whether, I mean, here's the ironic thing. is like, if you can really accept the thing that's true for you, then you don't really care if you move on to the next place. But in my experience, in my, both myself and experience in other people, other men's journeys, when they can really just like get off or approve or appreciate this weird thing that they previously shamed in themselves... Uh, it kind of loses its power and they let go. Um, okay, that was the first piece. I spent a lot of time on that. Uh, we're going to close up in the next 10 minutes or so, unless you, unless you guys have good questions, in which case we'll continue. I don't care. Um, so the first thing is I got your back. Can you approve, radically approve, and get off on whatever's true for you? That's an internal thing. The second piece can't always be done because... You approving of yourself doesn't necessarily change uh, the norms or taboos of your collective. And maybe uh, maybe there's some reasons why you don't want to go against the collective for survival reasons or, you know, it's critical for your career. I'm not saying you should, you know, punch your boss in the face just because you have that impulse. Um, but there is something incredibly healing about letting that shameful, previously shameful part or that shame part of yourself be seen by other people. So I'll give you an example of... Uh, so one way sexual shame showed up in me is that it actually caused uh, sexual dysfunction. I, I, was, I had erectile dysfunction when I was 23, even though my body was healthy. Why? I think largely because of shame. I was ashamed about my masculinity. I, was I, had, I actually had both of the two types of shame. I was ashamed around myself being too weak, and I was also ashamed about 
uh, the fact that when I was strong, I, I maybe could be harmful to women. I think the, the first, honestly, the, the weakness part was the, the deeper shame for me at the time. Because in order to feel afraid of harming people, you have to believe that you're capable of harming people. Anyway, it actually showed up in a physical, my body numbed out. I couldn't get it up. I, I, uh, I, I was functionally impotent, even though I was physically healthy. In addition to, I mean, there's physical exercises I did, which I share for free at Arousal Control Secrets, arousalcontrolsecrets.com. But the other emotional side that also I'd say was 50% of it, at least, um, was being willing to talk about it. Like I'd be in bed with a woman and the first thing, and you know, once things seem to be going towards sex, I, I'd tell her like, listen, I'm, uh, I can't get it up. It's kind of been an issue for me the last nine months or whatever. I don't know why, but I just want to tell you just so it's not weird between us. And it was, it was like, I was self, I was going out of my way to humiliate myself. The reason why this is powerful is that if you have shame and I was ashamed, like, oh, I can't get it up. I'm ashamed. And I would try, originally I would try to play it off or try to work around it or try to like force my, force my dick to get hard. And like, here's the thing, like my body did not, like, the truth of my body was I didn't want to have sex. I was forcing it to have sex. I was forcing it to go against my own body's truth for the sake of a collective or external expectations. Like, oh, if I'm embedded with a woman, I, I have to have sex. Like, that's important. And I was forcing my body to do what it didn't want to do, which perpetuated the shame, which made it harder and harder for me to feel anything, which made it even worse. So the opposite of that is taking that part that you're trying to hide and putting it into light. If you take it out of the darkness and put it into light, like, hey, here's this thing I'm embarrassed about, but I'm okay with you seeing it. You can't possibly maintain the shame at the same time. You can't possibly dissociate from something and admit, hey, it's a part of myself at the same time. And that in itself triggers something in your unconscious. It's like, oh, I don't have to be shy. I don't have to be afraid of this thing. Here's everything. Like, when I, when I, you know, I don't coach people on approaching, like cold approach necessarily. But the thing I would always say is say the most true thing for you. If you talk to a woman on the street and you're nervous, tell her, I'm kind of nervous right now. If you just say it, you may or may not continue to be nervous. But if you say it, there's nothing to be ashamed about anymore. And like, hey, she'll probably laugh and appreciate your realness, right? Even admitting that you're afraid is kind of a way of showing your dark masculine. Hey, I'm so fearless. I can tell you I'm afraid. Like that is a new level of ballsiness. Um, okay, someone asked, what if you feel like you're losing all the time even though you do your best? That's a great question. I would say change your marker, right? Because we, we mentioned the whole winner effect, loser effect thing. What you perceive as a win is completely arbitrary. Actually, the example, um, the, the original study that um, discovered the winner effect was that during, I think it was, the 19, it was a 1994 FIFA World Cup between Brazil and Italy, and they tested the testosterone of the Brazilians and the Italians and the dopamine before and after the game. If you follow if you follow soccer, football, you know that Brazil won. The Brazilians' testosterone went up 50 to 100%. The Italians' testosterone dropped 50 to 100%. But they weren't checking the players. They were checking the fans. The Brazilian and Italian fans had a major shift in their hormones because they were watching a game. You got to think, watching a game, they weren't even doing anything, right? It was all in their heads, all of their perception of like, this game is meaningful to me somehow. So if you feel like you're experiencing a loser effect a lot of like you're constantly setting a goalpost and you're falling short and you feel shitty about it, just change the fucking goalpost, right? Give yourself a win. Obviously, if you set the goalpost so low that you yourself like, like, okay, like my goal today was get out of the bed in the morning, you're probably not going to experience any joy. But if you're, if you could pick the right edge, right? Uh, it matters. I was just speaking about this with um, a client who's asking me about another client. I, I told the story, I forget, maybe in a podcast, but like. I had, a, I had a client who was like 
he was really, you know, very deep in anxiety. Couldn't even like he had a, a he, he had a crush on a receptionist, like his his uh, dentist receptionist. He had a crush on you know, you go in, he'd be too shy to talk to her. And I was like, well, clearly your truth is you want to talk to her, right? You want to tell her how you feel, right? That was his truth. But him going and speaking to the receptionist was so far beyond his uh, involuntary ability. Like he would try and then he would just like, you know, he would go crazy. It was very far beyond his range. We decided, you know what? Your job is not even to talk. Like that's not going to be a win. Because if you set that as a goalpost, you're going to feel like shit. You're certainly, I mean, he just couldn't. He was not up to that yet. But we set the goal, I, I, we set the parameters of winning. Go to the receptionist's office when you know she's going to be there and get two feet on the carpet in the office. If you get two feet, plant your two feet in there, take a breath and go home, let's count that as a win because that's more than you would normally do, right? Seems like this really insignificant thing. Like, but for him, it was a, for him, it was the right level of edge, the right level of tension where he can accomplish it and still feel satisfied in accomplishing it. And he did that. And you know what? He didn't get the receptionist. But within, I think within like two months or less, he started, you know, sleeping with women for the first time in two years. And like six months later, he was dating four women, which is not to say that that's like the end all be all, but that was a goal for him. That was far beyond his range, but he played at his edge. He set a goal post that could force him to stretch, but he could still accomplish. And he felt good about himself. And the next thing, whether it was actually talking to a woman, became a little more easy. Like if you play at your edge, your edge moves away from you. If you fall short, if you like constantly place an edge far beyond you, you can never move, uh, I'll use a foot, American football analogy, you can never move the chains. Set, set it at the 10 yard mark, not the 100 yard mark, and move the chains each time, and you'll constantly grow. And take advantage of this true biological phenomenon, which will spike your testosterone. Um, someone asked, uh, isn't that reinforcing a belief? Well, I guess you're letting it go after. Yeah, I think you were talking about sharing the thing you're humiliated about. Yeah, like if you're saying, like for me, I was like, hey, listen, I can't get it up. And I told them about it and I realized, here's the realization. I mean, part of it is like you're just, just the act of it is telling your unconscious, hey, we're not gonna hide anything anymore. The second bit was like, nothing bad happened. In fact, a lot of the times, some women did get weird about it. Like, oh, you know, okay, I don't know what to do or weird or, you know, they don't wanna, you know, they don't wanna, get into bed with a guy again who can't get it up fine it's gonna happen but every time a lot of women were like oh thank you for telling me like that's really sweet that's really brave of you to share um but really for, for i learned that no matter what her reaction was i can just be real nothing bad's gonna happen and i learned like outside of sexual things like i can i can express myself real like in a hundred percent true fashion with my old social circle they might think i'm weird but you know what i don't have to hang out with them all the time it's fine they're into their things i'm into my things there are plenty of people in the world into my things right so much of um so much of feeling good about yourself is being in the right reference group and like now in the, i mean a lot of us can't travel with coronavirus but with the internet it's so easy to find people that are into the things you want like you know a lot of guys that i coach i mean almost every person has some some sort of sexual desire or something they're into not i mean i'd say like half the people are in half the people i've ever spoken to are into something that are, is kind of weird but it's not so weird that you can't find people that are into it like i was talking with a guy uh who's had this weird uh not weird, i mean he thinks it's a weird uh, fetish to have a woman on a leash some people would shame him for that some people think it's weird he grew up in an environment where like that's a terrible idea to have but you know what? I know a lot of women who are into that. I mean, if you go on FetLife, you can just like search what people are into and you'll find people into the thing that exactly complements your weird thing. And this goes for anything outside of the bedroom too. Like there are people who like to talk about, like my best friends here in Thailand, they hate small talk. And I'm like so thrilled to be amongst a group of people that 
if there's small talk happening, they won't think it's weird if I just walk off because they also do the same thing. They actually think it's, they actually think it's weird that I tolerate small talk sometimes. And I'm like so thrilled to be around a group of people that has the same tab, has the same uh, desires as me, you know, taboos or not. So anyway, someone asked, uh, I do welcome an exploration of the self-belief or fear that you can harm, that you can do harm if you let go into the wild sexual world. Like who is in control there? Could there be hurt to a partner done? Okay, actually, you know, this is a great thing. I, I was going to address this anyway. Actually, this is actually brings us, thank you for the question. This brings us to our last action step. First one was having your own back. I got your back self, validating whatever's true for you. Second thing, which can't be done all the time, but can be done a lot of times is letting the dark parts of yourself be seen, like actually talking about it, sharing it. Like, hey, this is the thing about me. Here's my vulnerability. Take it or leave it. Um, the third piece is to validate your impulses through action. Now, uh, part one, the first action you could always do and always should do. Second action you can sometimes do around the right people or you know depends on how dependent you are on the reference group. The third piece is where you actually do, the third, third piece is actually validating your impulses with action. Yes, some of the things you might have the impulse to do, especially if you've let it pervert over, over time, can be dangerous. I would argue when, you know, like the, the desire to punch someone in, in the face is not an unnatural thing. Like little kids have that impulse. The desire to be dominant uh, in a sexual situation by itself is not unnatural. It's, you can see this in animals. Um, you can see this in puppies. Uh, I mean, to a degree, they don't do the sex part, but they hump each other. It's the same, same, same impulse. Uh, when that impulse gets perverted, when like you grew up thinking, oh my God, it's so terrible. It's so terrible to want to be stronger than the woman I'm with. It's so terrible. Like it, get, it gets twisted and worse and extreme. And like in order, if you go back to my, my theory that our sexual fantasies are trying to correct imbalances in our nature, if you keep pushing the thing away and making it worse and like shaming it harder and harder and harder, it's got to become even more extreme to correct it. So like a lot of women like to be choked in bed. I don't know the percentage, but it's pretty common. It's confusing to a lot of men, uh, but that's kind of like not a, that extreme taboo. Some women like to be extremely humiliated. Some men like to be extremely humiliated. Some men like to do crazy extreme things. Um, you can't do all of those things, but as I was mentioning, there you may be able to find people that you can do those things with. And aside from that, that's kind of like the it's kind of the reductionist thing. Um, the more important thing is you can validate your very true impulse without actually acting out to the point of harm. You do need to, you know, if you've let your impulse pervert to the degree that you want to like slash people's heads off, okay, maybe don't do that, right? But maybe you can let yourself feel that archetypally, let yourself go through the emotions. This is like, all right, this is, now we're talking about BDSM. One of the beauties of BDSM is that it creates structures where it is safe and consensual for people to act out their impulses, right? whether it's a taboo of like you want to get raped or a taboo that you want to rape or you want to do, I mean, there's a lot of weird stuff. I mean, I personally am not into like, I don't like anything that you know, blood, I don't think blood belongs in the bedroom or anything that by like, I'm not, I'm kind of vanilla on the spectrum. Um, but I've gotten a lot out of uh, being in a situation where I know the woman wants me to fill in the blank, dominate her, tie her up, choke her, spank her. Right. Uh, and I, if I get into it, I kind of like that too. And I can see, I can have the experience where I know she doesn't feel disrespected. I'm not disrespecting her. I know that she doesn't feel unsafe. We have like these, uh, you know, we're only doing this for the span of like an hour or whatever. And I get to act out my archetypal impulse in a way that is safe and consensual. 
I would argue that any dark or weird impulse can be expressed in some way, right? Like, I mean, I, I mentioned this in the arousal control secrets uh, free training. Like, let's say your genuine impulse is to run up to a woman and rip off her clothes and fuck her right there. Okay, you're not going to do that, right? You shouldn't do that. But uh, you can take, you can validate the impulse to do that and let it bring you up to a certain point where you can stay in integrity with the impulse without doing it in a way that's damaging. So maybe your impulse to rip her clothes off can be said like, hey, I, I'm i like insanely drawn to your beauty or I mean, whatever, whatever. I mean, I, I would challenge you to actually, you know, I would challenge a guy in that situation to uh, speak in the most edgy way, but not, not touch her, right? Like that's that's the point where, you know, you wouldn't want to challenge the collective taboo because you get thrown in jail, right? Or you wouldn't want to harm anybody either, right? But you can validate the impulse. Um, and, uh, you know, so I was speaking with, a, I was speaking with a client yesterday about this actually. And he was, and he actually, um, he, he has insomnia. And I would say, I would argue that he's actually very similar to the Fight Club character in some ways, where he is um, denying certain impulses in himself and is causing, I mean, he, he, was, he was sharing with me the science behind it, like his serotonin levels are low, so his body can't produce melatonin, uh, so he can't fall, or he keeps waking up at night, he can't stay asleep. And, I, and he was saying, oh, should I take serotonin supplements? Should I take 5-HTP, tryptophan, whatever? Like, yeah, I'm not saying those things. I, don't, I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not a pharmacist, I can't tell, but... Um, if there's anything I know from fiction and the stories that really put, you know, story, the reason why we're drawn to mythologies and stories is they really put the emotional uh, procedure into our mind. We're drawn to heroes' journey stories because they make us feel like, they give us like the emotional map to be a hero in our own lives. I suggested to him, if he does something dangerous for a change, if he does and follows his demonic self, uh, I, I bet you he would actually sleep better. And we can see this, I mean, Fight Club is fiction, obviously. But when the main character finally starts Fight Club, he can sleep easy, right? Uh, we see this in Breaking Bad as the other example. He didn't have insomnia, but uh, in the first couple episodes of Breaking Bad, Walter White basically has no sex drive. Like he can't even keep it up when his his wife is you know going down on him for jerking him off for his birthday. But then he does his first badass thing. You know, I think he squashed. Uh, I forget what he does. He does something. He he dives into the underworld. He finally validates his fucking rage to like you know, gain some power and he fucks his wife in a way that she doesn't even recognize him right these these actions have real physical and emotional and well-being uh expressions um uh yeah thank you thank you for the the nice comment uh there on, on the engaging this I, I hope this is helpful to people as well um i want to speak about uh we're going over time but whatever he stay or leave if you want um, I want to speak about the, the, the concept of demonic or demonic, like demon, uh, you may have heard this before, but like the word good comes from the word God. The word evil comes from the word devil. Um, the word demon comes from the word, well, it's also pronounced demon, but the way we spell it is D-A-E-M-O-N. I usually say daemon just to, you know, not to get it confused with the connotations around the word demon, the Christian, like demon, bad thing. The daemon uh, in in pre-christian greek philosophy is the is, is like it was seen as like this animal animalistic part of you that travels with you um if you if you're familiar with the book the golden compass in the uk it was called the northern lights uh, it was a whole series a harry potter like series in the 90s of books in that series the every person had a spirit animal that followed around that they called the daemon or the demon right is actually a you know this is like a, a mythologizing of something that's 
uh, a philosophy that, that there's some animal within us that is just a, as much a part of us as our conscious human self. Um, I'm actually reading a book called The Daemon. Hopefully I have the author on to speak about this, but his basic premise is that every person actually has two consciousnesses within us. There's our left brain consciousness, the uh, Eidolon he calls it, which is our ego, our conscious self, the, thing, the part of us that thinks it's in charge. And then there's the daemon, which is in our right brain, which is just as much a part of ourselves, but doesn't speak in words, and it doesn't have full control of us in our normal state. But it does come out in moments of intuition, in moments of uh, deep passion. Um, and like this is, and, and sometimes in, in moments where we lose control, where we're so emotional that it takes over or like where we're so afraid that like, you know, uh, he was giving all these examples of like um, people making split second decisions, like even in Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink, or in, in uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, he gives this example of like a fire chief who like, he didn't know why, but he can sense that something bad was going to happen. He just got this feeling. He's like, everybody get out. And all of a sudden the building collapses. In Malcolm Gladwell's book, he says, oh, it's because his subconscious mind was picking up on cues that he, his, he couldn't consciously process. Uh, another way to put it is that his daemon self, his uh, involuntary self, was just able to know things, right? Um, Anthony Peake, who wrote the book, The Daemon, takes a more mystical view on it. Of like, this is, a, this is a part of our consciousness that, that knows everything. Um, I'm bringing this up because uh, the whole idea behind Satanism and a lot of these like black magic things, the whole, the whole premise of Satanism as religion is putting the individual over the collective. Whereas Christianity and, and most uh, monotheistic dominant religions um, put the collective over the individual. I mean, not to say that it's, one is better than the other, but that's the, that's the conflict of good and evil of like individual impulses, animalistic gene propagating sexual impulses uh, versus what's good for society, which is not necessarily the same thing. Sometimes they're aligned, but they're not necessarily the same thing. But I, I would, I would uh, say that uh, okay, actually, two two more things on this last point is that invalidating your impulses. Uh, you know, someone just asked this, like, if you if you validate the impulse enough, if you like give it space, will it? If you really approve of this dark part of yourself, will it pass on and will it move on to the next thing? Maybe, maybe not. If you really approve of it, then you won't care anymore. But um, there's the concept of rock bottom, which is a, an addiction term, where like someone has to hit rock bottom to finally change. And uh, you know, I, I, when I uh, had um, Mark Lewis on the podcast speaking about addiction, we kind of talked about like, is this a necessary thing? And I will say when it comes to change, I'll say that even not far from addiction, when it comes to change in an individual guy, people only really change when, they're, when they can no longer tolerate their status quo existence. I, I'll go back to my client who like had the crazy, I mean, seemingly fast growth uh, where he like couldn't even uh, step into a receptionist's office and suddenly he's dating a bunch of women. There was actually many months in the making that led him up to that. But uh, the moment that he started to really like have like fast improvement in his life was when uh, he was like, I, I, he was experiencing so much pain that he couldn't do it anymore. So I would say in addition, I mean, if you want to go really deep, deep into validating your darkness, it can kind of mean letting yourself go crazy, validating your grief, validating your pain, right? If you are lonely, if if like you're, if you're thinking, if your darkness starts with like, fuck, I'm 40 years old and like, I haven't really lived a day in my life. Dig into that. Don't deny that. Don't pat yourself on the back and say, oh yeah, well maybe next year you'll enjoy yourself. Maybe next year you'll meet the love of your life and have a happy, like, no, no. Admit to what's true for you. Dig in and validate and approve what's true for you. You've wasted your first 40 years. Admit it. Dig into that. Feel the grief of that. Let that pain like be real for you, right? To a degree, I don't want you to kill yourself, but like let yourself feel that pain because if you actually feel it, at some point you're gonna be like, you know what, fuck this. You know, you'll go from, um, 
I don't remember the, I forget what this, I think this is a Sedona method model. Uh, Brian Beijing, my buddy from Fearless, shares this all the time. Like there's different, uh, there's a hierarchy of emotions. Apathy is at the bottom, where you don't care about anything, you're nihilistic, that's the worst. Nothing happens from that. Then there's grief, right? And you gotta really experience the grief for it to let you go to the next layer, which is anger. Anger is a little more, it's not a, it's not the best emotion, but it's a little more active than grief. Like, like fucking, I, I gotta do something, and you got it's gonna force you into things, and at some point, you move up to courage, which is like, I'm going to take action, but I have my own back and I'm actually going to take on the challenges here. Like win or lose, I'm going to fight the good fight. And then, and then uh, acceptance and then peace. But you can't just jump to peace. You can't skip all those emotions. You have to accept what's true for you. Because a lot of people try to force themselves to peace. But they still have this grief. They still have this shame. They still have this uh, feeling of inadequacy and they, they come off as a fake individual. So another guy, uh, like, uh, I mean, I meet, I meet guys all the time where like my, you know, if they ask me what their read is on them, I tell them, uh, you know, a lot of the times I'll say something along the lines of, if it's true, uh, you seem like you're disconnected from your darkness. And, and one guy yesterday asked me like, how did, how did I know that, how did I get come to that conclusion that he was disconnected from his darkness? Because he felt like he was trying so hard to show peace and it wasn't real. It seemed, it felt contrived. It seemed like he was trying so hard to fit in the collective norm of be a harmless guy who doesn't threaten anyone. And I was like, there's no way that's a real person. There's no way a real person is just peace. You got to have all that stuff underneath, which made me, you know, with a little digging, it's like, yeah, I mean, anyway, he shamed a lot of things. Um, rock bottom, reassociating sometimes means digging into the emotions. And uh, is kind of in no order, but the last little bits around the validating impulses and going di deep into... Go, letting yourself go crazy, go into your emotions, letting yourself hit rock bottom, digging into your pain. Two other practical, more mundane things, which maybe I could have said earlier. I recommended this to somebody in the group who is asking about like how to connect to his masculine edge. BDSM is one. I already spoke about BDSM. Um, if you are in America or Europe, uh, my buddy Omar Pani, I highly recommend his workshops. His intro-level workshop is a really great way for intellectual men who maybe are disconnected from their power and their darkness to like start to embrace it. I'm, there's probably many other teachers out there who can do the same thing, but I, I believe in his style. Uh, there's other people who I've worked with who I don't like the way they do it. They kind of, they force someone into it or they do it in a way that doesn't feel real. Uh, you know, cause like for me, like my first experience of whips and chains, like I'm not into leather, I'm not into any of that stuff. I'm into the psychology, into the archetypal side of experiencing your dominance. The other thing, it's kind of low hanging fruit. If you don't feel like you can connect with your masculine power, do some strength training, lift some weights, buy a kettlebell, learn some stuff. I have a great podcast with Brett Jones on, on kettlebell strength. The other thing is jujitsu. Uh, it's a really great thing that jujitsu and martial arts has become more popular because jujitsu, unlike other martial arts, let every class you have an opportunity to simulate combat. You spar. You know, if you do it in a safe way, if you're, you know, no one's a dick to you, you probably won't get hurt. You might get a little roughed up. That's fine. You're a man, get roughed up. But you get to experience real man-to-man -man combat, or maybe you get your ass kicked by women in the class when you're new. It's going to happen. You get to experience real failure and have your own back, and not feel like if your ego is so fragile that getting tapped by a, a, a woman in the class cripples you, then then you, you're exposing a lot of your holes. You're exposing your your faults. Let it be exposed and grow with yourself because. With anything like jujitsu, like jujitsu, where you get to spar every day, eventually, if you stick with it and take your ego out of it and like stop caring about whether you win or lose this practice match, uh, you get to experience the simulated feeling of death. You get to experience the simulated feeling of killing someone or breaking a bone. Um, and over time, you just get to develop 
a level of security because testosterone is so connected to violence. Most of us don't have to carry an axe or a gun or, or, or fight invaders or, or hunt our own food, but it's still very deeply primarily rooted in what masculinity is. I'm not saying we should be violent, but like if you get to experience this simulated violence, some part of you will feel like, ah, finally, like this part of this killer in me gets to pretend to be a killer for an hour and a half on uh, twice a week, right? Um, our world has kind of made certain aspects of masculinity obsolete, so we have to kind of look for them in order to feel complete. Uh, do I have any last thoughts on this? Any last questions? Thank you for everybody for coming on live. If you're listening to the recording or if not, I would really appreciate if you give me, uh, if you go to look for Rondo podcast on iTunes or Spotify, drop a review. It means a lot. I really want to be able to justify spending more time doing these. I really want to be able to help more people with this stuff. I, I know with topics like this, it's kind of an acute topic where, uh, I know there's a lot of men, I think, especially of Generation Z and of my generation, millennials, Generation Y, who have a lot of uh, incorrect, or like we have a new level of collective shame that previous generations uh, haven't experienced. There's a lot of positives. I mean, you know, the feminization of our culture has a lot of positives in, in that like even Robert Glover, uh, the author of No Mr. Nice Guy, when he was on my podcast, he was saying like, Millennials are the most empathetic of any generation. Like we are the most emotionally aware of any generation of men before us. Great thing. Great to be empathetic. Important to have your feelings. But I've also heard from women, like I, I'm, I'm seeing a woman right now who's dated across different generations. And she's like, man, uh, millennial guys, they're just too soft. They, they're, they're too dissociated from their masculinity. They're too, a little too watery, a little too too empathetic in some ways. And sometimes you just got to penetrate. Guys over 40 they were conditioned to just like go for what they want. And that's actually a lot more refreshing to women and like her sexual her, her deeper, more primal wiring responds more to that. Hopefully you're both a strong guy and a good guy. Uh, I don't want you to go around harming people, but if you're wondering why women seem, seem to respond to the bad boys or the assholes more, it's because they're actually being more real on a primal level. Um, someone asked, can you, can you leave ratings on Spotify? I believe so. I actually don't use Spotify myself. Um, I use a different podcast app, but I believe so. Uh, if you go to uh, spotify.ruando.com, it should forward you to my... Uh, it's going a little slow because I'm streaming right now. I'm not sure. I, I believe you can rate things on Spotify, and if you can, I appreciate it. If, uh, I've been pretty bad with marketing um, because I just wanted to do this for fun. But then I was like, you know what? I really want to get this out to people. And, you know, I, this is tied to my work. But, I, I, you know, the thing that I'm working on personally right now, especially in COVID, the thing that I'm pondering in quarantine is like uh, how I really want to show up in the world and how I definitely don't want to show up in the world is posting a bunch of click, meaningless click photos on Instagram. I don't want to do that. I believe in like this high attention span pondering stuff. And like, I appreciate everyone who's watching live and I love the live questions. And I think this is closer to real. Um, but even like, you know, and I know some people like to watch on YouTube, but I, I would rather you put this on in audio, put, put, put in your ear, uh, headphones and lift some weights while you do this. Like this, that's how I listen to podcasts or like do some chores, do something physical, get your eyes off the screen, get out of your chair, um, and like actually stop and think, um, or, or even dr while you're driving, listen to a podcast. I think that's the best time you can hit pause. You can think about your own. It's a lot more active than going uh, through video clips like little like like oh okay all right next one next one next one just get that dopamine hit without actually engaging with like with like your own thoughts 
which brings me to my last thing. I forgot about this. I forget because I suck at marketing. Um, I should maybe, maybe I should get off on that and embrace that instead of shaming it myself. Anyway, um, I made this a couple of months ago and I forgot to promote a contemplativeman.com. It's a couple exercises uh, by emails, all free, uh, to encourage men to be more contemplative. I encourage anyone to be more contemplative. And uh, it does lead into a promotion for my archetype class. But even if you're not into that, I don't care if you spend money or not. Uh, the exercises, I think, are good for your attention span and get you to think a little more critically and engage with reality a little more actively than passively the way social media tries to turn you into a drone. Because Facebook has its own collective norms, which is makes basically to get you to just scroll and look at ads and buy things. Like, that's a taboo that I would love to embrace. Um, anyway. Uh Cool. All right. Any last questions? Thank you for the love and the comments. I appreciate you guys watching. We're going to end in a minute unless anyone has any questions around darkness, masculinity. I could answer personal questions if you want. Um, oh, actually, let me last bit. Um, I don't know how much I want to speak about it, but someone asked me what I learned from my breakup recently. Um, and I kind of, you know, I threw back the question out because he was asking from a, from a position of, uh, what could I have done to have avoided the breakup? Which in the theme of today, I would say the assumption that I wanted to stay in the relationship or that a man should stay in a relationship no matter what, I think is, uh, I mean, it's a collective norm that is arbitrary. I, I was speaking with some friends about another one, which is the idea, it's kind of a Western ideal that life is valuable no matter what. And like this idea that you can't, shouldn't take people off life support or that, you know, I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but I will say, I mean, there's certainly cases where the best thing is maybe to, put someone out of their misery and like, you know, I, I, when my grandpa had a stroke, um, my dad was like, you know, if, if, if this was a dog that we really loved, we would have put him out of his misery a long time ago. But like, because he's a human, we have to keep my grandpa alive in pain for another three months. And forget about the money spent, like he's just in pain. Anyway, that's a, that's a taboo that a lot of people in the West don't question. Like, oh yeah, should you keep people alive no matter what? Whereas like in ancient Rome, it's kind of normal to, if anyone was born with a deformity, you kill them because uh, they actually believe that that's the more humane thing. Don't let someone live with a deformity. I'm not saying what's right or wrong. They're all just kind of arbitrary taboos. Um, but anyway, I was going back to what is, um... all right, before I talk about my break, I'm going to answer this question. Uh... Tips on transition from non... Oh, yeah. All right. Sorry. I did mention... I did mean to uh, tie that into what I was saying before about validating impulses. So the question was how to transition from, I guess, a platonic interaction to a sexual interaction. This goes to the third action step I suggested on embracing your dark masculinity, embracing your truth, is validating impulses. So uh, one of the best coach pieces of coaching advice I got from uh, one of my coaches a long time ago was that if you have the thought in your head, is actually, I'll credit him, Ken Blackman, he's been on the podcast, great guy. Um, he said, um, if, you have a, if you're with a woman, you have the thought in your head, should I kiss her right now? That is your subconscious telling you to kiss her. It could be that you are, I'm gonna break it down even more than that in a sec, but just to get this high level idea. If you have this thought, it could be that your subconscious is reading positive signals from, you, from her, like, oh, she's, she wants you to kiss her and your conscious mind is not picking it up. It could be that you have no shot with her. There's no point where she's ever going to accept you kissing her, but your impulses are still saying we should kiss her. Either way, that's the time to make a move. You might get rejected. Here's the thing. with uh, uh, 
the the overall thing of, of transitioning from platonic to sexual is that I, I would even challenge that idea that if you're really being true to yourself, if you're really being true to your male nature, uh, it's pretty rare that you look at someone as just platonic and then all of a sudden see them as sexual. I would argue this is true for, for women too, but I think women... Uh, are women, whether it's cultural or biological, veil themselves more often? Like you'll hear from women, like, "Oh yeah, I didn't think I didn't think he was attractive," and all of a sudden I thought he was hot. Right? That actually might be it might, that actually might be truthful in that like so many of the sexual cues that men display to women are non-physical. But I would argue for most men, if you ever would see a woman as a sexual partner, you probably saw her as sexually attractive from the beginning. Um, so for you to behave purely platonically and, and not, um, I might have to plug in my computer in a bit, but for you to, to see a woman as purely platonically and not, um, and not sexually, you're actually lying to yourself. Now here, we're, we're breaking down the practical tips. If you, um, if, I mean, obviously you're not just going to walk up to a woman and say, Hey, I want to fuck you. Right. But any woman who's honest or any woman who's maybe old enough to have noted, collected enough experiences to like recognize what's true in her sexual interactions will know the first time she made eye, she, she was looked at by a man who eventually expressed his sexuality or she eventually had sex with, there was some twinge of sexual feeling. doesn't mean that he said anything sexual, but he, he felt some. So here's where it can maybe sound mystical, but I don't think it's mystical at all, uh, is people can feel each other's intent. If you see someone as a sexual prospect, you're actually being far more truthful by treating her as a sexual prospect from the beginning. Now, what this means in uh, in, in practice, actually, if you look at uh, Ryan Gosling movies, there's a a scene that uh, I've seen other like YouTube channels break down. Uh, it's like where I forget what the movie is, but Ryan Gosling approaches Emma Stone, and he flirts with her, and eventually he invites her like very forwardly to bed. The entire interaction, if you look at the way he's looking at her, he's looking at her like he wants to fuck her. She can feel that. And she's actually, you know, she kind of like, you know, negs him or swats him off or teases him back. But like she can recognize in her own self that he's looking at her and thinking of her um, uh, sexually. Uh, this is how, if you're being truthful and authentic, this is how you have to start the interaction. Even if you ask her for the time, you look at her like a sexual prospect. There's, a, there's like a, a training wheels exercise. I give some guys who have trouble with doing this. This is not something you should, it's, I call it training wheels because you should not do this your entire life. But if you have really a hard time, if like when you talk to a beautiful woman, if, you, if, you, if your shame or conditioning cuts off your sexuality, I, I would tell guys like for maybe a period of time, let's say maybe a week, now don't do this forever. When you see a woman you think of attractive, and you go talk to her about something mundane, think pornographically about her in your head. Go deep into your dark fantasies. Think of your dick in your mouth. Think of stripping your clothes off. Think of bending her over. Don't do it, you know, but think it because it'll allow you to feel comfortable and embrace this sexual feeling when you interact with her. Maybe it gets transmitted, maybe it doesn't, but it'll allow you to not dissociate because if you're getting, if, if you're getting friend zoned, it means that she felt comfortable in seeing you as a non-sexual being, right? If you so the, the uh, if you express yourself sexually, you might get rejected, right? If you look at someone with like you know with like dinner plate eyes, uh, and she's like, "Oh, this guy wants to fuck me. I'm not into it." She might get rejected, but you know what? You won't get friend zoned. And but the, and the only chance you ever have of being sexually accepted is putting out there. It's kind of like the step two I said of letting yourself be seen. If in some way showing hey, I'm a sexual person and I think you're sexual too. Maybe you get rejected, maybe you don't, but at least you're like, 
you do this enough times, just like with saying anything potentially rejectable or humiliating or vulnerable, uh, if you do this enough times, you recognize, you know what? Some women are going to reject me. Some women are going to approve. But no matter what, it doesn't mean anything about myself that's bad. I can, you know, I, I have these desires and they're true for me and people can accept or reject it. That is a solution to shame and a, and a practical application of expressing your sexuality with women. Um, uh, I just want to make sure I didn't miss any other nuances. I know I spoke about it at a high level, transitioning, speaking. Oh, at some point, I, I, the one pickup artist technique that I still think is valid. I mean, uh, the, the term is a term called statement of intent. If you're with a woman, if you're spending time with a woman, you know, even whether or not you're like, uh, you know, uh, feeling sexual or being flirty, because women can feel intention, right? No matter what, uh, at some point you have to make it over. And it's kind of a man's job to do it. Women do this nowadays. It, women can do it too. It's not a bad thing. But at some point you have to overtly state that you think she's attractive. Whether it's uh, you say that she's beautiful, you comment on something physical, you do a physical gesture that is not platonic, you lean over and kiss her, you say, hey, I think you're really beautiful, or hey, you know, whatever, I love you, or whatever. At some point, you have to break that barrier where you overtly, doesn't matter how much sexual chemistry or vibe is that you have to overtly state it. Um, it's kind of a necessary step. And I think, you know, this is putting yourself out there. And... Um, if you are having trouble transitioning from platonic to sexual, it's either that you've acted non-sexual for too long or you've waited too long to make it overtly known. Um, for someone who's stuck in the friend zone a lot, I would make a practice of uh, thinking pornographically in your head for a period. You don't want to do you don't want to objectify women forever. That's going to make it hard for you to connect on a real level. But if you're having, a, if you're really shaming this, I would say go to a slight, you know, go a little bit further than maybe what should be your long-term normal to correct it, correct the imbalance. Um, yeah, I mean, guys who I, I mean, guys who get friend zoned a lot, I think have the most sexual fantasies because they're they're trying to correct it in themselves. Uh, hold on, I'm gonna real quick. I need to plug in my computer. I'll be gone for ten seconds. And then I'm going to uh, then I'm going to answer the last questions. All right. Okay. Um, yeah, and, and you, for the guy who asked the question about, um, let me know if that that completely answered your question. Uh, there might be more specifics that you want. Someone else asked uh, contemplativeman.com. Yes, that is it. Um, I'm going to answer the question. All right. Uh, you should only be platonic with a woman if you don't find her attractive or because of corporate societal constructs. Yeah, correct. Um, yeah, I'm not saying that you should all, I mean, there are times where you are dependent on the collective. Like, again, don't punch your boss in the face. Maybe it's not a good idea to express your sexuality at work. But maybe, maybe your work is so against your natural instinct that you should just say, fuck it to work. It's, I'm not going to make that decision for you. Someone asked, have I read the book Models by Mark Manson? No, but I, I, I've i heard that, I mean, by the time I heard about the book, I felt like I've already embraced these principles. Not to say it's a bad book, and I would love to speak with Mark Manson at some point. Maybe have him on the podcast. Um, all right, so let, let's say, feel free to ask more questions. I'm it's, This is the morning for me, so I'm happy to spend more time, but I wanted to, things about my breakup uh, that relate to this. Okay, yeah, someone asked me questions of how I could have prevented my breakup which which has the embedded assumption that I wanted to prevent my breakup. Anyway, one thing that I learned about myself 
in that is that one place where I still get shamed very easily, uh, going back to the very first question we had, uh, am I completely shame-free? Absolutely not. Um, one thing, one place where I feel shame is guilty. It's kind of like that, the second taboo that I mentioned, the misuse of power taboo, because, you know, I, I've been, I mean, I'm not saying I'm perfectly conscious, but uh, I've certainly been less conscious when I was younger. And as I started to like come into my power and come into my confidence, you know, I haven't done anything that terrible, but I, you know, I, I have harmed women out of negligence or out of my own insecurity and stuff. Um, and I feel guilt about it and I don't want to be that kind of person. Um, but because of that shame, that, that shame of myself, that it's not a, you know, I do have some shame. Uh, I've noticed that I easily get guilted into doing things by women, by women. And like, even my, you know, my last relationship, I'm not going to say anything negative about her as a person. You know, she's a great person. I think she's a wonderful person, but I kind of got guilted into being in the relationship in the first place. And I got guilted into a lot of things where I abandoned my own impulse for this ideal, this collective, I mean, our, the collective reality was two people and a relationship is just the two people. You have your own collective reality. There was a collective reality set that, uh, I am too selfish and not doing the right thing for him. I'm not saying that I'm not not selfish, but I did a lot of things that ended up being way more harmful in the long run because I was so afraid of feeling guilty over doing something that made her feel bad. Um, and like I abandoned myself a bunch of times, like because like I you know I I am working on a thing in myself where I do have a habit of like going from woman to woman and like. You know, not sticking around into like uh, long-term intimacy. You know, I mean, I admit I have I've never had an anniversary, um, and uh, you know I don't want to be like that my whole life. But then I, I look back at my relationships of all these women who wanted me to stay, and I, I don't. If I'm really true with myself, I didn't want to stay. It would have it was actually inauthentic for me to stay longer. And whether this continues the rest of my life or not, I, I this relationship I finally got to terms with myself of like you know what, I'm actually being more real and more authentic by leaving or by doing the thing that I want to do. And I shouldn't, you know, I actually cause more harm. I actually cause more harm by doing what I, what she says she wants because I end up letting her down in the future because I genuinely don't want to be there. And, um, and there's a lot of like specific instances. I don't want to like sound like I'm, you know, complaining or listing all the things. It would be, it wouldn't be interesting to you for me to just list these things anyway. But there are a lot of instances where I had a very strong intuition of what was true uh, whether it was like a relationship conflict, an argument, uh, you know, whatever. And uh, she saw things the other way. And I tr I was trying so hard to not be domineering and like give her space. That what I think is important. You give your partner space to have her reality. But I was so sure that she was steering us the wrong way. But I was like, you know what? I want to be a good guy and validate her, uh, her viewpoints. And like, let's try it her way. And I'm not, I mean, I know I could probably sound, I could probably sound like such a prick saying, oh, well, I was right about everything, you know, uh, what, what, you know, I'm not saying I was, but there's a lot of things that I kind of knew was going to happen. And I didn't, I didn't do what I knew was right because I wanted to make her feel good as well. And in, in these specific instances that maybe through selection bias, I'm identifying myself, I happened to be right. Like I happened to know it was going to happen and I didn't listen to myself. And that was, um, that was me abandoning myself. I was not having my own back. And I've learned not to take on this idea that I that I need to stay with a certain person, a certain thing. And I, and I did get this reflection from a guy who I know, 
who is a little older than me, and he's had a, he had a similar thing in his twenties and early thirties where he went from woman to woman, and like women were always saying to him, "Oh, you're immature. You're not settling down. You should settle down." The 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 right thing by society is to settle down with someone, and then he turned thirty five, and he's like, then something switched in him, and then he's like, "Yeah, you know what?" I and then now now he's like happily in a committed relationship with two children, and he's like, "Yeah, I don't even have I don't even have thoughts about other women anymore," and it was a kind of a, a, a quick switch, and I would say. He was able to evolve to the next level, not to say one was better than the other, because he didn't shame himself for thinking, oh my God, I'm such a bad person. Because I'll speak for myself. <laughs> I have shamed myself the last couple of years in some way of like, oh my God, I, I keep going from woman to woman. Like I don't, I don't commit. I, maybe I'm immature. Maybe it's Peter Pan syndrome. Uh, and maybe that's true or maybe that's not, but I'm, I'm not going to feel secure and whole and perhaps evolve to a different type of person until I accept what's true for me. This goes for you as well. Whatever is true for you, it's got to be true for you. Not that you're right all the time, not that your instincts are right all the time, but you have to approve of the instinct in order to not dissociate because when you dissociate, the real bad stuff happens, whether it's damaging yourself or living a life of quiet desperation or harming others. You can't move past that unless you help yourself. All right, we're on the two-hour mark, so I think I'm going to close up here. Thank you guys so much for watching live. Thank you for everyone who listens to the recording later. It's going to be up on iTunes and Spotify and Stitcher and all those places soon enough. And I would really appreciate uh, a review on iTunes or Spotify. Um, trying to get more people. I'm grateful that I have the audience that I have. We have an international audience. I try not to check my stats too often, but we got people all over the world. Uh, so I'm really, that's fucking cool. Um, but I would like to reach more people, especially with content like this, because like it's not about... You know, it's not about us. It's about uh, it's not. It's not just about the individuals. Like I am trying to introduce a new collective ideology that's more conducive to the typical man, especially a guy who's suffering with shame or his instincts. Anyway, that's it. Uh, yep. Yeah. All right. Thanks, guys, for watching, and enjoy your evening, afternoon, or night, or day, morning. Trust.